Welcome to the American Hardcore Podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Blush. In our first few episodes, we talked about how the hardcore punk scene changed the course of music. Not just the speed and the sound, but the very reason for making music. For instance, punk was the most radical music to date. The 70s punk bands, though, paid lip service to terms like do-it-yourself and all ages, but it was the hardcore bands like Black Flag and Dead Kennedys who set in motion this whole idea of DIY. They put it into practice. The original punk bands were also part of the sex and drugs and rock and roll generation. But then came the DC band Minor Threat with a song called Straight Edge. A like-minded and equally intense band out of Boston called SSD or SSD Control took that concept to the next level, helping turn Straight Edge into the lifestyle it would become. So let's introduce this week's guest, one of my favorites, Al Barill, founder and guitarist of the mighty Boston band SSD. Welcome, Al, to the American Hardcore Podcast. Hi, good to be with you. Great to have you. You know, there's so much to discuss and there's so much as, you know, we don't want to turn this into war and peace, like the longest thing ever done. But mm. I, want, and I know there's a lot of modern politics we want to talk about too, but I thought it would help to go way back. Um, talk about your youth growing up in working class Lynn, Massachusetts, Al the hockey player, your introduction to rock and roll, and then your introduction to punk rock. So just kind of take us, give us a little flavor of Al growing up. Yeah, so I grew up in Lynn, Mass, which is a very working class union kind of town, but you know, suburbs, which is probably uh, 30 minutes out of Boston uh, to the north of Boston. So uh, grew up, uh, you know, a loving family, mother and father, uh, provided me with uh, the things I needed to do. And, uh, you know, a big, a big thing in my life uh, was teams, okay? My whole entire life was really, it's been based around teams and teaming and things like that. So as a kid, you know, I had a little crew and we, uh, you know, we, uh, we terrorized the neighborhood basically, you know? Uh, no, not, not, uh, not uh, glamorizing anything, but uh, certainly uh, various uh, levels of uh, delinquency were, you know, so I had that crew and that, 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 and then we, uh, you know, all us guys played sports and uh, hockey and football and, uh, you know, migrated through uh, junior high school and uh, high school, you know, and uh, somewhere along the way, um, say around in the seventies in the early seventies, I started to get into like the Jackson five, that era of like, I guess uh, that's when I first became aware of music. I'd say early seventies and then, 75 was probably a transitional time, but I mean, early Jackson five and the Osmond brothers and that stuff, like the, the stuff you see in the magazines. And then, you know, I remember uh, like uh, uh, Don McLean, American pie. And uh, I used to go downtown in Lynn. I used to take the bus or go with my mother. And there was a little record shop, like uh, it wouldn't even it'd be even before independent music. It'd be the, this little mom and pop record store. And they'd have the singles in the in behind the thing. The albums used to be over here, but it was not a lot of albums, you know. I'd go in there and I'd buy the singles. I remember buying Rick Derringer, Rock and Roll, Hookie Koo, and Dobie Gray, Drift, Drift Away. So those were like, that's my original, what I bought. I bought the Jackson 5, like ABC, One More, uh, One More, so I can't remember all the singles, but 
all those singles that came out, you know, Puppy Love, Donny Osmond. So, so that whole thing uh, up until that period was how I got, really got into music. But and then 75, so eighth grade would be 75. I remember I started getting into trouble a little bit more, like maybe just, you know, pushing the envelope a little bit more. Not like really bad trouble, but like pushing the envelope. And uh, uh, so Queen, Queen was the first band I became aware in the eighth grade. You know, Night of the Opera had just come out. And uh, I remember seeing the Queen video on TV, you know, when Night of the Opera and saying, geez, what's this? You know, so that was, that definitely peaked. There was a girl, Christine Engelman, I believe, and she was a big Queen fan and she, she was really talking up Queen. So it got to Queen. Uh, fast forward, uh, uh, you know, 75, still on, you know, a bunch of sports teams, you know, baseball, hockey, and stuff like that. And then started having some uh, issues like 75, 76, or like things started where like these teams were kind of falling apart in front of me. Like my, my sports teams were kind of falling apart. And uh, my local uh, guys that I hung around with kind of some little bit falling apart uh reshaping itself and um so i was i guess you could say i was like lost a little bit maybe you know <laughs> so from 75 to like 80 i guess definitely were like my searching out years trying to figure out what's going on and i also felt that i i really could during these these issues with like these teams like i had i had conflicts with like uh, uh you know the hockey coach the baseball coach and my father was involved in this scenario too. So my my father's very outspoken. He's, you know, my father wouldn't take shit from anyone, you know? So, you know, I have to almost, you know, my father's involved in this whole thing. So I really didn't feel like I had a voice in many ways, okay? I, I felt I'm a very shy guy to begin with. And I'm not sure if that even comes across, but I am a very shy guy. And I didn't feel a lot of self-empowerment at all. You know, I felt, I, I, I you know, I felt it inside me, but I couldn't, I couldn't really, couldn't really, uh, like when I was with my friends, you know, you could see that I kind of knew where, where we were going, you know, very self, self-confident, self-aware. Once I got outside my circle, I started to lack confidence, you know? So, so I think those years were like learn, you know, just observing the world and, and trying to understand what, what was going on, look, you know, observing people and uh, really kind of, the, I think those were the years that kind of built up the, uh, like what would end up being the kids all to say you know those were the those were the years that that would lead to those first two albums really you know because i was kind of like really uh you know experiencing things for the first time in my life uh there's a lot of things uh i wouldn't you know, i wouldn't classify them as betrayal but there was a lot of a lot of adult kind of you know adults in my life were making confused decisions with me you know like i mean there's things that i didn't quite understand I, I was a member of a golf course around that time. Uh, I don't want to go too deep into this, but I was a member of a golf course. Uh, the golf course had a very inert name called Happy Valley, okay? Well, the golf pro at that course used to take little boys in the back room and do things that he shouldn't have done, okay? Well, in 75, they renamed the golf course after that guy's name. <clears throat> so, like, you know, I'm in the eighth grade. I mean, I'm thinking, like, you know, none of us, Number one, he didn't do anything to me, so I couldn't say anything really, right? I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna like rat out all my friends, right? The odd thing is, I went in the back room with him, but the guy never made a move on me, you know. So that kind of messed with my head too a little bit. Uh, but my friends, you know, never spoke out. But I mean, I was, it wasn't even about that. In fact, I used to think about the guy's family. I used to feel bad that if this ever came out, 
know, with the guy's family don't know anything. Okay. So what that taught me at that point was you really can't trust, you know, maybe what people think, you know, or even putting a name on a building. I mean, how do you know what's really going on there? So I, I really did start to look at the world a little differently then. A little skepticism. I started to really examine what people were, you know, real and which were the fake people, you know, and that's kind of how I have lived, uh, you know, I'm 59 right now. That's really, I've lived the entire life that way about really uh, trying to figure out who's the people, who are the people that I really believe in and who are the people I want to trust and who are the fake people, you know? And, uh, you know, I don't think it's my place. I'm not, I'm not going around here calling out fake people and phony people, but, you know, if, in my, if they, if they, a part of my, my circle of interest, you know, then I'm going to call them out, you know? And uh, oh, you know, you would you bring up this aspect of truth, and I want to get back to that later yes. because that, that I think it's that's an important big, theme that's in a my big life. Part of you, yes. Yeah. Um, but um, I know. So, I'm just gonna say, without was, truth, without truth, yeah, my whole thing is it's like nothing, you know. Like me, if there's no truth, then then like you might as well say I don't exist, basically, you know. So that's how important it is, you know. Mm -hmm. No, I've I've always felt that about you, and I want to, I'm going to talk about that a little bit longer, uh, a little bit yeah. later. Um, one thing, uh, I guess this leads into punk rock somehow. Um, and I know for myself as somebody who was athletic, but didn't quite fit in with the jocks and all that kind of stuff was that punk really spoke to me as an outsider. So I assume it's something similar with you. So kind of, um, I think we well, all, you know, like it was not a cool thing to get into at the time. So punk uh, or, or, or sports, punk, punk rock. Yeah. Punk rock. Okay. Yeah, well, certainly punk rock wasn't, uh, you know, I mean, a lot of people don't even understand back then, but uh, it was, you know, people did not, uh, people fucked with you, you know, <laughs> like, like it was, a, I'm not gonna say it was a war, but I mean, you go out, you don't know what's gonna happen, you know, I mean, it's not, it wasn't like the, the culture now, I think, accepts, accepts that kind of thing, you know, and, and we weren't the kind of punk rock guys that were more like the, you know, the steery the ones you stare at well more like the ones that you're afraid of maybe or something you know like i mean if you look at them so you know it's just a little it's just image or whatever you know like what people think but so anyways but it, it's important because i don't think people today could relate to what is being you know following that kind of music being well you, you know it's a little risky let's say you know mm -hmm. but uh i did i did gravitate to that because uh to be honest and it's once again i found that that's the most honest music there is you know i mean the honesty of that music really is what drew me to it, you know, like, like, I'm gonna tell you like 70. So, so 75 queen, you know, uh, 70, uh, 78 cheap tricks, 79, you know, the Van Halen's that my production ACD couldn't see ACD Sterling because they weren't remember, they weren't uh, super popular, and they were playing the club circuit now. And that ties into the all ages thing. I wanted to see ACD. So they, there's this club in Boston called the Paradise, you couldn't get in the Paradise. Now, I wanted to see Ch cheap trick played there 78 or 77. I wanted to see him, can't do it. So like, I was, <laughs> it's just like, I was, I was always saying to myself, why don't they let me in to see this band, you know? But you know, ultimately I, I learned over the years, you know why? Because they want to sell alcohol, you know? I mean, it's like, it's like, it, it's not about music here. So I mean, you'll see, read a lot of my lyrics say about selling drugs at three in the night and stuff. To me, there's like a, there's like a conflict there, you know? Like, I'm, I mean, I think kids want to see music and they want to sell booze, you know? Like even the all ages thing, you know? Uh, to be honest, I mean, we, we pushed that. I mean, I'm not going to say, you know, Ian probably, uh, you know, I think Ian was like adamant he wouldn't play anything but with all ages. 
we we try you know we're not we wouldn't have like a hard hard line but it was pretty hard you know like i i know we didn't play we played the rat once and that was just one and done but we didn't play many over 21 clubs but but i'm trying to get to the point is we 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 tried to force the all ages thing but uh you know they end up you end up doing the sunday afternoon all age thing okay and I got to be honest, that Sunday afternoon is like the last thing I want to be is in a club in the summer, okay? The last thing I want to be is in a club, okay? So I resented the shit out of that. And, you know, I, I know it was up. They, that, uh, that afternoon opportunity was another, it was like uh, additional income they could draw. Like, like if you're a restaurant, also you open for breakfast, well, you, you just bring a more op- economic opportunity. So what did all ages do for them? It brought more income, you know, possibility. Not, not a lot of income, because I'm sure there's more money in selling booze, but it brought, it brought, uh, you know, brought the, you know, probably uh, they can use it on their marquee, you know, black, whoever played here, all ages, look at they make podcasts about it, glorifying it. But to be honest, it wasn't even right. We should have had, we should have had a Saturday night, all ages. That's the way I look at it. You know, I don't think we should have been relegated to Sunday afternoon. So I was never really cool with Sunday afternoon. I, I wanted all ages, but I wanted it like everyone else, you know, I don't, you know, I don't think that it's mutually, mutually exclusive booze and music, you know, whatever, you know, I didn't go for that shit at all. So, you know, we started off in, in alternative spaces, you know, I mean, and these ideas were hatched way before uh, SSD, you know, I was trying to think of how I could be a promoter, how I could do this, you know, where I would put these shows on. So for the band it even formed, I believe, you know, like I was trying to find, but I mean, it was important that the space had to be in Boston. Okay. Couldn't be, I'm going off. I'm going way off now, but it was important it couldn't be in the suburbs, really, you know, because this had to be a Boston thing, I felt, you know, it had to be centrally. So, you know, it, it just made it a little bit more difficult. But, you know, we found we found a way to kind of uh, put it on its put Boston on its on what I feel is its path to, you know, whatever it was. You know. Everything you just said before kind of led into a question that I had, which was talking about okay. the rise of SSD control. OK, um, what were you what did you set out to do? And what was in your head at the time? Well, my head, my head was to to just be an impact fan, you know, like like. <laughs> I mean, it's like I, I must have big balls or something because I probably shouldn't say that, but you know, like I mean, I'm a I'm a kid from Lynn, who really didn't play guitar that long and 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 learned it in a very uh, unconventional way. Like I never learned by playing other people's songs, you know. I, I, I kind of like maybe I learned I think I learned one Ramon song <laughs> I think maybe a Ramon song and a Black Flag song I don't even like remember my guitar teacher you know and that was it pretty much I didn't I never really uh, enjoyed like uh, never really enjoyed uh, I never really sat down and said oh this is great I I thought that guitar was a vehicle to the truth <laughs> like, like it was like it was like my way you know because because you got I say this to other people and I don't think people understand it but you know, growing up in my high school, the kid who played guitar was the guy who had like long hair down here, maybe like a scraggly mustache, and he and he was like everything was Led Zeppelin. You know? So, so you know that that was the kid that I interacted with, and I used to say, "This isn't me. I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna play guitar. This isn't gonna work. Who's gonna want to play in a band with me? You know, like so. Like I used to think, this is crazy. Like you know, but I said, well, I gotta try. You know, so I. I told him, I like, can you, I want to try this, you know, so I tried and some in my head, it was all about being in, in this band, you know, like, it wasn't even about learning guitar, it was about being in this band and writing these songs. And it wasn't even about getting on stage, I, I got to admit, I never really had a, uh, 
I didn't do any of this because I said, I'm going to go on stage and you're like, oh, you know, I never really said, I want to go up on stage. I don't really like being the center of attention. I'm, kind of, I'm very shy, actually, you know, but, uh, but I said, but I said, I'm going to do what I have to do, you know, like, because, because I figured I got to, I'm going to voice and I'm going to, I'm going to, um, I'm going to like, you know, really what it was, I was going to form a team. I'm going <laughs> to, that's really it. You know, I'm going to start another team right now. Like it's time to meet, start another team. So that's where I put an ad in the Boston Phoenix, you know, that, you know, looking for these people. I happened to meet uh, my bass player at um, Dead Kennedy show, I believe, and maybe, you know, some other shows. So, you know, so I, I had a plan, you know, I think I had a lot of uh, courage or a lot of uh, gumption to, to think I could pull this off, you know, because like I said, I don't think I was like the prototype guy that I, I mean, if you asked anybody in high school, I don't think they would have picked me to be the guy <laughs> in this in a, in a band period, let alone a hardcore punk band, <laughs> I'm not sure. I just didn't think it was like in the cards for me to be this guitar player, you know what I'm saying? So that, that's like the decontrol. It's more of like an empowerment thing and, you know, society system. It's just like maybe like the plan that maybe someone had for you or the plan of how it's going. And maybe you just say, fuck it. I don't, I don't go along with that plan. I'm going to do something else, you know? And Unfortunately, because I'm not taking, you know, I'm not proud of this, but I mean, like that, that's kind of been my struggle my entire life is I'm constantly like fighting <laughs> with people and fighting the fighting that plan, you know, like, like in that, blame me, that plan's that plan never stops, it appears, you know, like right through my work, man, they, that plan, I was fighting that plan all along, you know, so it's, it's, uh, it's tiring, actually. Yeah. Um, I have a question that actually relates to one of the images behind you. I didn't even know okay. it. But... But I remember, Paul, right? reading, I remember reading some Boston New Wave magazine before okay. the first album came out or right around that time. And they were really upset about this song called How Much Art Can You Take? Yeah. Which to me seemed like a battle cry. So why don't you kind of talk yeah. about, I don't know if people really understand what you meant by the new wave versus hardcore kind of, whatever, well, I, take, I just, take that where you will. I, once again, it's, you know, I don't want to go back, keep on going back to the themes, but it's a theme of like, so when I entered the Boston, you know, music scene, you know, I, I gotta be honest, there wasn't too many bands I could relate to, you know, coming from my background. I didn't feel like, I didn't find many, if any, you know, if any. And, uh, you know, I think I, I, you know, I saw the neighborhoods a few times and, uh, uh, you know, there's all there's bands that like Springer, like, you know, La Peste and uh, Pastiche and uh, Nervous Eaters, you know, these like, you know, so, Boston, I think, had a certain sound going on, and it wasn't the sound I wanted, you know. So, uh, so like, how much art was was the battle cry to blow it up, really, you know? So it was like, it was like, uh, hey, guess what? I'm blowing the fucking, I'm blowing this scene up right now. So, like, I gotta admit to you, it was, it was, uh, it, you know, they maybe they, hey, I don't know if I mean, maybe I said it like that to someone. I don't think I did. I try to make, I usually try to make my, my uh, taglines ambiguous, you know. But I mean, that certainly was the was the battle cry was to say, uh, there's a new sheriff in town here, and we're not going to play this game, you know. So we're going to change it a little bit. So how much art was like, you know? And I I don't know. Like I definitely know. It's interesting because we didn't do it in their places because their place would be I call the rat. That's I'd say their their central thing. We did it in a gallery. So there's the how much art thing, you know. Like it's like like we're going to start in the gallery and work outwards. You know, they're in the clubs. And they're our band. I call them our bands, post-punk, whatever. You know, I used to call them our bands, you know. Uh, and, uh, you know, they, 
I don't know. Like, and I'm going to do it or not. I, so I no just really, I immediately connected with your band when you did that. I mean, I, not that I even didn't like the art bands, but I just really, as a suburban kid, really understood where you were coming from. And it really wow. immediately connected with me. I think it was a big uh, changing point in Boston music scene in a way. You know, people might not know it, but there was because I can I could go down and list the bands that similar to maybe when like um, the grunge bands came into the metal, metal hand metal scene in a way, you know, all of a sudden they're looking around like, what hit me, you know? I mean, it's not not much different actually, you know, but we didn't have the help of MTV. We, we just like were, you know, on the street doing it, you know? Yeah, so. it was, it's pretty incredible. The, the power of this underground music that you and a bunch of other bands, of course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, represent. no. I'm just yeah. saying, I, you know, I don't you know. No, there was uh, this word. I don't know if you know the word. Uh, if I mean, we know the word, but yeah. it, the word zeitgeist kind of means like something that happens all around you and there's not really a reason. It's just everyone has a certain feeling. And to me, that's what hardcore was. It wasn't like you could turn on the radio and hear this music or anything. Just everyone knew that they had to take punk and turn it up a notch. You know? Yeah, was, I mean, I, I tell you, it was the most, you know, because I got, there's two different, you know, two different parts of me. There's the, the fan part of me. And then when I became part of the band, I, I had to, I had to kind of like push that fan part away, actually. You know, a lot of people don't know it, but I mean, so I, you know, like in the late 70s, you know, from 75 on, I used to, you know, love going looking in the store those album covers you know like imagining what's inside of it so i was like a record guy you know but but so the you know in 80 you know seeing the black flag that yellow record the uh i can't remember the yellow, the yellow. jealous yeah again. like to be honest i didn't I, I i bought damage but i'm like a jealous again guy you know yeah. like uh like to me that was like that's where my heart and my love of music came out you know the clash had put out um um, you know, London Calling and stuff. And it was like, that was like my glory days, I guess, you know, of being a fan. You know, then then they did Sandinese, you know, so like, you know, a lot of a lot of turmoil in bands and stuff like that, you know. So, I mean, my, my glory days were like around the, that period there. So, but I, what I'm trying to say is that, that as the band evolved, like 82, 83, I had to kind of put my, my music uh, fandom, I don't know, if you know, my love of music on the side because, you know, I think other people might might not do this, but I, you know, to, for me to be pure and organic, I can't be listening to all these other bands all the time. You know, how can it not influence what I'm going to play? You know, so I had to put it on the side. Like, you know, I don't own a lot of these albums that I quote the uh, you know some of the found foundation albums. If it, if it came out to like eighty two or eighty three, I probably don't. I probably didn't own it. You know, and I just couldn't. You know, I couldn't keep on. I thought it was like, you know, I mean, I don't know if other people feel that way. And I don't, I don't know if people in bands feel it. I, I got to believe they know what I'm talking about. But I mean, you can easily kind of get derailed a little bit if you hear some album, you know, just like, like I'm sure those metal guys, when they heard Nirvana or something, they must have got all fucked up, you know? So Yeah, no, I relate to that. I mean, I don't really read, I mean, I read books, but I don't really read rock books or, you know, okay. I, I try to, because it's going to mess me up. Yeah, so definitely. definitely. Relate to that. Um, you know, because of working in music for so long, I figured recently that I've, I've seen nearly 10,000 bands. Live? Live, yes. Because oh I worked God. in clubs, I was a DJ, you know, I, I, yeah. I've seen so, you know, I've, I've, you know, I've, in New York, sometimes I've seen four shows in a night, you know, like that kind of a thing. And, you know, it, it, the number doesn't really matter, but considering I've seen so many bands and SSD at the Chancery at DC still resonates with me because of that 
and I just want you to talk about this. I just recall feeling this commitment beyond music. There were ideals, there were concepts. It was about intensity and it was about truth, like I said before. That's, that's kind of what I got from SSD. Yeah, I mean, like, that's what you should have got is this bludgeoning truth, you know? Now, you know, some people might say, oh yeah, what kind of truth? You know, Springer is not straight edge, da 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 da. You know, you, you got to think about it. that's pretty hard to have. Uh, you know, uh, number one, Springer should get actually credit for singing my lyrics. I think you know because that's not easy to do. So I give him credit. You know, uh, and if Springer had a strong voice and he really like said, "No, I, I got lyrics. I'm gonna sing." You know, maybe we would have had a little bit of a different discussion. But I'm actually appreciative that he did sing my lyrics. So, so like uh, you know that end of it. You know, yeah, someone say, well, it wasn't truth because Springer was in straight edge. You know what? I didn't sit in uh, Monta Springer when he went out, you know, and said, hey, you guys need to follow these rules. There was no rules, you know? There was never any rules. People misunderstood it. Straight edge was about a choice, okay? It was about a choice that I didn't think ever existed in my life, okay? So when I, back in, when I saw, like, I don't know, 80 or 81, when I saw the guys in D.C., I, you know, I didn't say, oh, I'm, I'm looking for another Bible to follow. I'm looking for another set of rules. I said, man, these guys are proud. They look, they look like, uh, they look cool. You know, I said, uh, I, I, you know, I, I like this. You know, I said, this is a, you know, and at the same time, um, late set, you know, 79, 80, I had kind of, you know, I, I started, uh, I started drinking when I was in the eighth grade, actually. So, you know, weekend kind of warrior stuff and, uh, you know, started in the woods and, uh, and I, you know, I wrote Force Down Your Throat in the Woods for Christ's sake, you know, back, like it, it was written in my head, it wasn't on paper, but I, read it, I wrote it in the woods, you know? And I always said to myself, what am I doing here? You know, I don't even know what I'm doing. You know, like I, I didn't know was, this wasn't me necessarily, okay? I'm not saying I didn't roll with it either, you know? But I just knew it wasn't me. So, so to me, the truth is, like basically like just like stripping away all that shit of what, you know, this maybe and just like making decisions that you want to make, you know? And so straight edge to me, it was always a choice. It wasn't a set of rules. It wasn't a guidelines. I didn't read Ian's song and say, straight, oh shit. Yeah. I'm not going to fuck anyone. I'm not going to do this because it didn't make any sense to me because, you know, you never could draw the line. You can't do this. Can't do this. To me, it was about, you know, really intentions and stuff like, you know, as far as you say, not getting fucked up, you know? I mean, like, I mean, I, at that point, I hadn't tried all these drugs and everything. I didn't know, but I mean, it's just like, just living your life, you know, in the, in the true sense, you know, that's kind of what I did and try to be honest, try to be, you know, uh, just try to tell it real, you know, I don't, I don't really go for the, uh, you know, so anyways, I think I'm you know, going around the, circles. The thing about truth really comes back too, because I look at, and this will fit in, because I was going to ask you about, um, why Straight Edge spoke to you and which you just kind of answered, but also like yep. your enduring friendship with Ian Mackay. And I was gonna say one thing that strikes me about the two of you, it comes back to that word truth. Like I've never heard any bullshit from either of you guys. You know, I, I think that's, that is what we share. That is our bond really. I mean, we've never said, I mean, he, he's got a better memory than me. So like if I ever contradict anything and he says otherwise, I defer to him, you know? But my memory, my recollection is we just talked like real shit. You know, we didn't, we didn't like, you know, I, I'm not holding back anything, you know, I'll just say, hey, can I be on your label? Hey, you know, it would help me and whatever. Like it was just no, so that's, that is our bond. And that's, our, you know, he, 
he, you know, I look, not many people that I uh, really uh, admire and look up to and, you know, think that they, a good, really great person or something. He's definitely one of them, you know? So, uh, you know, I didn't, like I said, I definitely knew, you know, me and him are not the same person. We are so far different. And part of, part of my truth was me being true to him. Like, you know, I'm not going to go down to DC and all of a sudden, tell him I don't like football and hockey and try to be something I'm not because I want him to like me. You know what I'm saying? That was the difference. You know, like, like when I, all through the eighties, you know, I'm blasting ACDC along with black flag and everything else, because if all of a sudden I stopped listening to ACDC, that's not right. I mean, like, did something change? I'm not, I don't like ACDC right now. No, you know, it's to me, I didn't see the difference. You know, to me, I looked at black flag. I looked at the bad brains and ACDC. I looked at, they're all bands, you know, I just thought some of the other bands were, were a little bit, truer you know mm-hmm. so. um ian had discord records and you uh started a label called exclaim uh which had some great records i must say yeah. um so talk about exclaim that whole venture and that rise and fall but also and also you know you had these really cool record covers like kids will have their say and get it away so you know and number one i wasn't trying to sell records you know like i just wanted to make a record you know now, when it's, you know, how it's sold and whatever mechanisms that was, that was all going to take care of itself. I didn't like get into it saying, okay, I want to sell, you know, a thousand records, 2000 records, whatever, like, you know, for monetary old things or like for like, okay, this is what the band needs to do. No, I just, we wanted to make a record. We needed to make that record. That Kitchell to Say record was a very difficult record to make. We were, we, uh, you know, we recorded once kind of a demo. Actually, I think we made like a How Much Art demo the first time we went to the studio and then we tried to, re- I think we tried to record it. It, it wasn't happening. I think, uh, I think we tried again. <laughs> this wasn't right. I think we tried one more time and I think we finally got something that we put out. So it was not an easy record for us to make. Uh, a lot of it no- mean I didn't know what I, I didn't know really what I was doing in the studio. I didn't know what I was doing in a band, let alone a studio, you know? Uh, so, so I was learning, you know, learning a lot as it going on. And certainly the studio, I'd say, was the uh, most foreign place for SSD, like being in the studio. It was really, it was really uh, not comfortable for me. I didn't, I, th- I think the entire process through four or five years, I never can say that I was completely comfortable in there. So making those records was difficult. So, you know, but it made sense that, you know, if I fronted the band and ready for the, to make the recordings and, you know, put the records out, I mean, well, you know, I don't know, it just didn't even make sense thinking like I should, I should ask someone else to put this record out. I don't even know if it's going to sell or whatever. It just didn't make any sense. And, and, it, and it felt right doing it yourself. You know, it was like, you know, it felt like, I don't know. I didn't think, but I, I can tell you that that Newbury Comics, um, the Boston on LA record was kind of hovering around the same time as, uh, as our record was still, we, we were still trying to make it maybe on the second or third time. And that offer came up and, you know, flat out said, no way. No way am I going to give, you know, to me, I felt they were jumping in, you know, and I know both those two guys, they're not bad guys, but at the time I felt like they just like kind of doing the old typical jump in, you know, cat, not, I won't say cash in, jump in, whatever, you know, it didn't feel right to me. And I know that record's gone on to be, you know, very successful. A lot of people think that's the, you know, uh, you know, one of the important hardcore records. That's great. But if you ask me, do I regret not being on it? Never, not for a second. Do I ever regret it? I think it's great, you know. It's just not our record, you know. Like, uh, uh, it's not, you know, wasn't going to be our record, you know. And I, I would never have signed up for that title, you know. I didn't agree that I would never agree to that title, you know. 
So I think it's a stupid title. You know, I thought it then, I think it now. I always thought it was a stupid title. You know? mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you really helped drive this original Boston hardcore scene. You inspired kids to action and you really set the bar in terms of the intensity. So kind of talk a bit about this early 80s uh, Boston hardcore scene that, that as it grew up. You know, it was very intense, very forceful and certain, you know, I think we had our style. I don't think we we're out to hurt people. I don't know if that made us the best way to put it. I, if, some, if there was a uh, casualty, you know, if there was, uh, you know, <laughs> if a beer got knocked out of someone's hand along the way, I don't look back on that as a big problem, you know. I don't know if I'm saying, you know, that's the best way to put it, you know. I mean, a lot of rumors happen along the way. If something like that happened, I'm not going to say it didn't happen, it did happen, but I, I probably would maybe say, you know, 50, you know, I don't know what percentage, it wasn't intentional, but, you know, it could have been intentional. I don't really know how to answer that, but, you know, that's the folklore you might hear It was hear just about. so yeah. great in, like, this rock and roll milieu, if you will, of, like, you know, knocking a beer out of somebody's head, because the beer was so... <laughs> such a thing with rock and roll you know and you're yeah it's, it's, i don't i don't plus it's expensive too like you know i, I you know i don't, i'm not gonna say it didn't happen because i'm sure it did happen right but but I, but on the flip side even back then you know i i it's kind of cruel to knock a bear out of someone's hand they just paid two bucks for or something you know <laughs> i don't know if i i don't know uh you know like you said i'm not gonna say it didn't happen but it's it's not something i would do every day yeah um, you know, I know you fairly well. I would, I don't know if anyone knows Al Burrell really well, and I don't no think I know doesn't. you well, but I would say I know you fairly well. Yeah. And, um, I remember being like for the American hardcore film, being in your house, watching, watching a hockey game. It was a Bruins Rangers game. I don't oh. know if you remember that. No, so, I remember so I know what year sports... was that, by the way. What's that? Was that like 2010 maybe or nine? Or yeah. Something? something like that. Yeah. Okay. So, um, so I know what you think of New York at a sports level, but what did you think of the New York hardcore scene and kind of talk about, we hear stuff went down between New York and Boston that's been talked about, but it, I don't know, just give your perspective on all. Yeah, so my perspective is, you know, my original perspective is, so I went, I went to see Cheap Trick in like 1979 to the Palladium, you know, and in my, so that's like my first, like, my, like me driving to New York by myself you know whatever and uh you know i i i grew up i had a lot of uh, hostility towards new york because of the yankees the red sox thing actually more than the rangers thing because i grew and i grew up uh watching bill lee get pummeled by greg nettles you know and it was a it was a lasting image it really bothered me you know uh <clears throat> so and you know the at the time the yankees those those 70s yankees were like were, were like you know the bullies on the on the on the as many respects, you know? So, I mean, I couldn't, you know, I just couldn't relate to him, you know? Like maybe if I grew up when Babe Ruth was there, maybe I could have been a bit, I don't know, but I could not relate to that 70s Yankees team and it spilled over into my personal life, you know, a little bit, okay? So I'm not gonna say I didn't go down to New York with like some bitterness, but but I did realize it was a sports thing. Like, I'm not like a crazy guy that's just like, you know, to me it would be like a friendly rivalry, like sports thing, fuck, you know? But it, but it, it wasn't like, you know, because I can tell you, to be honest to God, truth, New York was like our second home, you know. the new I mean, uh, we played New York definitely almost maybe as Boston, I would think, you know. It wasn't, we didn't play a lot in general as a band, you know. But New York treated us unbelievable, you know. Like, I mean, so I could never, ever say that I didn't like New York. I mean, they, 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 uh, 
they really treated us well. You know, I could never say anything bad things about New York. Now, now my impression of the of you know the New York scene. Okay, we're talking scene. When I first showed up there, you know, my first time, I saw Bad Brains in one seven one. Like probably this was like March of eighty one. I think you know. So that was like an underground thing. One seven one is like quote the scene. You know, you're not going to go to one seven if you're not part of the scene. But we happened to stumble in on one seven one. You know, and there wasn't a scene. That's all I'm going to say. You know, I mean, there were, I didn't see much of a scene. Har maybe Harley was, I don't even remember, but Harley was a little kid back then, you know. I didn't see the scene, you know. I remember there's a guy, Booby. I remember these guys, Booby. You know, so I remember some of these early people, but it wasn't much of a scene. Uh, John Joseph, I remember, you know, was around, but he was in the Bad Brains thing, you know. I didn't know where he was from. You know, originally told me he was part of the DC thing. And then come to find out he really wasn't part of that DC thing. So, you know, there's a little, I didn't really understand it, but, um, you know, then, so as every year we would come back and I think the final year we played was, uh, I think it was like Rock Hotel, Great Gildersleeves. And it, that was the moment that you like, now, if you're asking me from an outsider, I'd say that's the moment I said New York has a hardcore scene, you know? Uh, now it might've happened a little New bit New York earlier, was late was the to the game. There's no doubt about it. Compared to DC and Boston, New York was a little bit later to the game. That's that's yeah, and but but you know, let's face it, and it, it created its own great thing, but it came, it started slow. Yeah, and it's you know, New York, New York has different um, baggage, let's say, you know, because they grew out of the you know that whole Blondie, that whole thing, the CBG, you know, the new whatever, you know. So they take a baggage there. They got hangers on from there. Like maybe they didn't blow it up like I was. Like if I was in New York, I would have blew up all those people, gun the fuck out of there, you know. Like, I think they let them, they let them linger on a little bit more or something. I don't really know. I'm not from there. I can't speak, but they had their, they had their own baggage to deal with. And, you know, New York is, is based on those clubs that stay open to four in the night, you know? So, you know, it's a, a different thing, you know, like, I, I don't know if I would have endeared myself to that thing, but, you know, there's something beautiful about it too, in a way, you know, uh, you know, it's got ugliness, it's got beauty in it, you know? Uh, I'd say the same thing when I used to drive down to New York, my running joke, and you know, some of my thing would be like, say I drive, I drove to New York in 1980, and then I go back in '84, and I'd say, that's the same fucking piece, that's that fucking same rapper I saw in 1980 sitting there. That's and it was a joke, but I was serious. So, like, I swear to God, that fucking piece of trash was still there like four years ago, you know. So that was like what I thought, and that's where Get It Away came from. Get It Away, I got pussed. I said, man, you gotta, you gotta draw this scene in my head, okay? It's a, it's like New York, like the street New York, fucking trash everywhere, smoke everywhere, you know, bottles broken. I said, this is what I see when I go to New York. Can you draw this for me? You know, now Pustin at the time only drew monsters and stuff, you know, don't even know that, but I love that cover, you know, as much as I love the first cover, I love that cover, you know, he nailed it, you know? <laughs> so uh, I don't know if I, I don't even know what I'm talking about now. Um, talk about some of the highlights of SSD, that 1981 to 1985 journey. What are, what are like some highlights to you of that? You know, the, the highlights were some of those bigger shows we played, you know, like we, we definitely, we played a couple big shows in California. First time we made the, Cal you know, we drove straight across. That's the insanity of me is that like a lot of bands toured along the way. We drove from Boston straight to LA, you know, like I had different like perspective of things, you know, like to me, like. Like, I didn't think, I didn't, if we played three days in a row or three days out of four, I didn't think we'd play the fifth day, you know, like, that's the way I looked at the band. We were like, we were like, you never know what, you know, not, not like the members weren't going to show up. It's more like, you know, will we break everything on stage or something like, you know, would, would, 
amps work or, you know, I don't know when I hurt, break my arm or something. I just had this like, uh, like outlook that, you know, this is something I got to manage, you know, like I, I can't unleash this beast all the time. Otherwise it will, it won't last, you know, it'll eat itself up or something. So, so we just drove straight to California, play the, that was, that was, an, a, you know, even though it was a bitch of a ride, I really, you know, opened my eyes to, you know, uh, what was west of really Ohio. And that, hence, there's the Howie Rock, Howie Rock cover, uh, never, you know, kind of got some shit because they thought it was rip off the Jewish priest. It really wasn't. It was really the lasting image in my mind from that 83 drive to California was this vast open road of nothing, you know, fields left and right, nothing, nothing. And I'm like, this is America. I never thought this was America. I thought it was like, you know, my, I was like where I lived pretty much the whole stretch of the country. And that's really, at least at that time, 19, maybe now it's different, but then it wasn't, there was this vast field, you know, and I was really taken aback by it, amazed by it, uh, mesmerized by it, really got a different appreciation of America a little differently, but it was a tough ride. I did all the driving myself. We did it in like three days or two days, you know, it was like insane, you know, but anyways, it was just a different way of doing it. And then we, so we played a big show in, with GBH. And this is like uh, Santa Monica Civic, which is a like two or 3,000 seat. You know, that's a big step up for us to go from, you know, whatever to, but I mean, we handled it very well. Uh, we didn't, uh, you know, I can honestly say me personally, I never had any nerve, nerve issues ever, you know. I didn't, I can't say I really desired to be on stage or like look forward to it, but I, uh, I never was nervous, you know, I never really didn't want to do it. Just, it was like a job, you know, that's the way I look at it. It was like, I, yeah. But that was an important show. I mean, friends of mine in LA have talked to me about that show, you know? So, I mean, it definitely, you, you made an impact with in, in very little time there. In fact, that kind of leads to my next question, which was the odd part of SSD was that the band rarely toured because you had this union job with GE. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of talk about that whole divide, your day life versus your night life and, and the yeah, band so I, versus secure, job security and like all that stuff, you know? Well, I mean, in many ways, the, you know, the job paid for the band, you know, like, I mean, I, I'm not, I, I've always, uh, I've always been one to believe that, you know, I'm not going to like, you know, uh, plan on the band being the income generator or generate revenues, you know, generate revenue streams. To me, it's like, I'll work to generate the revenue streams to pay for the band. And maybe the band will eventually pay for itself, I hope, you know, and, uh, you know, or turn a small profit, but never like, you know, some big profit. So I, uh, you know, I, I pretty much funded, uh, you know, I bought the van, I bought, uh, you know, I put the records out, did everything I could. So, that, you know, that job was important, uh, but it also was important that I was growing up during that period, you know, like uh, I was learning about unions and working in a corporation. Oh, um, I was, a geez, I think I burped, cut that up. <laughs> mm -hmm. I was, uh, you know, I just learning, you know, learning about people was like my next evolution, uh, you know, because talk about phony people, man, you're like, you know, I'm like, really, that I, was, I got to expose to the union and see the hypocrisy of a union, hypocrisy of workers, hypocrisy of management, different way. And I, I kind of formulated, right, you know, during that period of like, well, I'm not going to be like that, you know, I'm, I refuse to be like that, even if it means that I won't get ahead or I won't advance in the company. I'm not going to be like that. You know, I'm just going to, I'm going to be my own person. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to live my own truth. You know, like I'm going to be, the, you know, it, I'm, I'm, and you know, as far as when I say this truth part, it's like everyone's truth might be a little, there is only one truth, you know, but, but I'm saying my, my truth might be 
it's not facts when I say my truth, my destiny, you know, what, what I'm supposed to do, how I'm supposed to live when I say truth, you know, when I say, you know, the truth matters, that's like the, uh, you know, that's the ultimate real, you know, that's real facts, not the alternative facts that we're seeing now today, you know, so I, I think that that could confuse people. I hope it doesn't, but. No, it makes sense. Um, t- uh, tell us about the breakup of SSD. Well, you know, the, I think to understand the breakup, I gotta, I gotta take it back to the musical transition. So, you know, Get It Away, I mean, uh, Get It Away comes out, we add a second guitar player. He doesn't write those songs with us, but he's recorded with us, so we layer it. So we have this new expansive sound that's really actually exciting and we're excited. We tour, we don't tour, we drive to LA on that 83, okay? And we play like four shows or whatever. And we drive straight home. Uh, we play one, three shows or four shows. We drive straight home. So, you know, that now, you know, we're, we're in the process of writing How We Rock, you know? And, uh, you know, when I, look, when I look back, I thought the first two records, I thought we wrote some good riffs. You know, I said, I'm the main songwriter, so I'm, I'm anal, you know, self-analyzing uh, my own work. I thought I wrote some good riffs, but I didn't think I wrote complete songs, okay? I thought that, you know, I thought the, the uh, attachment to lyric, to music, you know, definitely needed to get better. And, and you know, I'm, con- you know, I constantly do the self-analysis my entire life. So, you know, this is a, this is a constant thing. You know, I'm not, I'm not uh, playing uh, armchair quarterback later on. I'm, these, are the, these are the thoughts that we were having, you know? So, and I said Springer, you know, and, and I do regret some of this and I can explain, but I said Springer has, Springer's needed to up his game a little bit, you know, he's, he's got to get better, you know? And I could get into the real minutiae of it, of his singing, but there are certain things that he needed to improve upon in the minutiae, okay? So we sent him the voice lessons. We tried to really help him. At the same time, musically, all these bands like Gangrene and Jerry Kids were on the scene. And um, my impression were they played fast and they played really well fast, okay? My impression, once again, like, you know, hearing you speak about when you saw us here or there, you got to understand, I don't know if people understand this, but when I'm on stage and play, we play, right? I don't know if we're any good or not. I really don't know, you know? Like, uh, I can judge by some reaction, I can feel it sometimes, but you know, sometimes I don't really know how we stand up, you know, whatever. So, so I can't say like I, I was like hearing a lot of like, hey, you guys are the most incredible band in the world, you know, well, don't change a thing, whatever, you know, I wasn't hearing a lot of that. We weren't getting a lot of great reviews saying this album's the most incredible album in the world or anything, you know? So, you know, in, in many ways, um. I'm just like doing my own self-analysis, but not getting a lot of data from anyone else, you know? So I thought we had to slow down, number one, because I thought like when we were on stage, I can tell you these thoughts were in my brain. When we played on stage, I don't know if people even realize it, but the sound, when you're playing on stage, what you hear and realize back then there wasn't a lot of monitors and, and, you know, stage sound. So what you play on stage and what the audience hears are two different things. It's never the same, okay? you know what you hear through these two ears depends on where you are and all these things so half the time I and then I would hear then I'd get off stage and I'd hear gang green play and I'd say oh my god these guys are so tight they're amazing I go we're gonna eventually people just like forget about us if we keep up on this path I go we have to we really have to hone in on what we do well and 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 kind of like work within those things and I made the conscious decision I go we got to slow down now, on hindsight a little bit, I, I think um, 
some of that chaos and out of control, whatever feeling on that record, on that record is actually the beauty of that record, you know? So in a sense, I sterilized, I was sterilizing the band in many ways, you know, by, by making Springer <clears throat> take lessons or whatever and try to change, you know, on, on introspection, I should, I, you know, I shouldn't even thought that way, you know, uh, because I was, I was taking the organic SSD and trying to make it better, you know, instead of just letting it go. And, and I'm an organic guy, you know, but I, I, I really felt that um, to continue, you know, to even make record three and four, I felt things had to change because I didn't think there would be a record three and four unless we did change, okay? So that's why the change happened. It was never like, oh, we're, you know, we wanna be this, we wanna be better. That's all we wanna be. And we wanna, we wanna be able to like write songs that are better. And we, we want the singing to be better. And we wanna, we, we don't wanna get blown off the stage by playing sloppy, fast songs, you know? That's all we were thinking, you know? Uh, really wasn't more. And, uh, you know, I can tell you perspective means a lot back then. You know, when I, when we made that move to Howie Rock and then made, you know, the next move, it all, it all felt right. You know, it didn't feel like we were forcing anything really tremendously, you know, but, but, you know, I think the re and I'm getting to the reason we broke up. So after, after the break it up, you know, hence the title, break it up, put the title, we knew we were breaking up when that record came out and, and you, and I kind of knew where the history was going because if you think about it, how, how we rock, I gave modern method, put that out. I didn't put out on my own record label. That should have, that should have been the warning sign right there. You know, when, uh, when the only, when the owner of the company is in the band and he doesn't put it out on his own label, <laughs> you know, that should send signals to someone, you know? So those were the signals, you know, I wasn't sure what, if this was right, you know, because I wouldn't have gave it away if I really believed in it. I got to tell you that right now, I would not have given that record away if I believed in it. I didn't know if it was right, but we recorded it, like spent a lot of money recording it, you know? So, you know, am I going to not put it out or whatever, what, you know, and uh, I, I am a firm believer in documenting documentation you know i think it's important to document it so i guess the choice would be to not put it out right and not release like those last 20 songs i elected to put them out i knew they weren't going to be popular we knew you know we, we were getting spit at you know we knew but uh i felt it was more important to put them out just laid on the line say this is how we rock <laughs> you know like i mean even that title is kind of absurd when you think about it i mean who puts on a record how we rock you know i just was trying to say this is what we're doing, you know, this is how, you know, we're being true. You might not like it, but it's, it's real, it's just real. You know, we're not like, you know, we weren't forcing anything really. We were just kind of evolving and, and yeah, I, I mean, and then, it, you know, I can just tell you about perspective. You know, I remember like looking at it like in 89, looking at 96, I don't listen to these records much at all. I probably listened to those last two records, maybe, maybe two times in 25 years or whatever, not often. But, but I, when I did check, I remember I was trying to think, did I get it right? Did I get it wrong, you know? And um, it's, it's changed sometimes. Sometimes I think, I, I mean, I remember what we were doing and sometimes I think, yeah, it was, we should have let it go. You know, we did the right thing. And sometimes I say, eh, I don't know. <laughs> you know, so like, so I can't I, even answer Yeah, it. I had that album when it came out and I liked it because I had heard Metallica and Slayer yeah. and I was kind of going that direction anyway. But I remember like a real pushback against it. And, yeah, um, yeah. Do you feel like that? You must have been hurt, right? I mean, did you feel like the scene turned on you or something like that? Was that? Was no, that not really, because 
You know, I, I can't say that, but I mean, I, I remember there was someone recently on a podcast, I think it was, uh, you know, he said that he can't, you know, he, he went along for the entire journey. He wasn't going to jump off the ship after get it away. He came along for the journey, you know, which I, I mean, yeah, if I could have picked, that's what I wished everyone did. I'm going to come along for the journey, you know, but, but I get, I mean, I get it from the fans perspective. I completely get it. Uh, you know, a lot of the things that, um, a lot of the things that was wrong with SSD, I tried to approve upon in the next band. I mean, I, I was taking a lot of mental notes, you know, and, uh, and there was mistakes we made. You know, one of the biggest mistakes we made is that we all, by the time a record came out, we already were playing the next record, you know? It's not a good thing to do, you know? It's a terrible yeah. thing to do. And so many bands fall into that trap. And, uh, you know. So after 95, you kind of exit music for, for a few years. You kind of come back in 92, 93-ish maybe with Gage. 85, yeah. So 85, I, I sold, you know, 85, I, you know, important that you know i saw the scene breaking apart too as well as my band i also saw the scene breaking apart the boston scene okay i saw you know this the the, um, the central location now shifted a little bit you know it wasn't the galleries or the media workshop now it was the clubs and you know it was soon to be the rat i believe and stuff like that you know so there was a shift going on and there was a street in boston that i refer to called queensberry street and my crew, I felt that my crew was being dragged into this Queensbury Street. I labeled Queensbury Street as the den of uh, den of destruction or something, you know. And nothing good happened on Queensbury Street. Let's just put it that way, okay? I didn't even hang out on Queensbury Street. It was a it was a very inert. Uh, it was right one street parallel to Fenway Park, so it wasn't a bad neighborhood, okay? It was a it was a actually trees and stuff, you know. But uh, there was a lot of stuff going down on Queensbury Street that I, I felt was uh, not really what I was into, you know. So. Uh, it seemed like that was where we, all my crew was going towards. So I could see that going, you know, I'd met Nancy at the time. I started to think about, <clears throat> you know, I definitely didn't want, you know, I, at the time I was thinking of, you know, we had achieved some level of success, whatever that, you know, is. And then we kind of like, you know, started going downwards a little bit with the last two records, but it still was, you know, we still could play places and stuff. Right. So I remember having this thought saying, um, you know, hey, we've achieved this level, you know, we could still make records and stuff, whatever, even though, like I said, we did hurt ourselves maybe with those last two, the the second, the third and the fourth record. I said, you know, do I want, do I want to hold on to this or would I rather throw it away and start from scratch again? And I said, fuck it, I'd rather throw it all away and start from scratch again. You know, it's, I think it's, you know, it's not an easy thing to do and a lot of people, uh, a lot of people don't make that decision. They just hang on and, you know, uh, fire a couple people at a couple new people, you know, because, because they built all the momentum up to that point, you know, to throw away all that and then restart from scratch isn't the, it's, it's really hard to do. It's not easy to do at all. And most people are going to tell you, you know, most people don't have two bands in them, you know, like, uh, you know, certainly two bands are going to be liked by the public, you know? So it's, it's not, uh, it's, uh, it's daunting, I would say, you know, I mean, yeah, maybe, uh, Ian, you could say, is an exception because he had Fugazi after my threat, you know, uh, maybe out, maybe uh, outdid his first band, you know, but I, that's the exception, I think, than the rule, you know, uh, but he, and he walks on hallow ground, so he, he doesn't, he didn't have the same rules us mortals have to live with, you know, as far as, uh, <laughs> you know, like, like, I think the critics always a little bit more receptive to his thing than, than uh, our thing. Yeah, probably. 
Um, yeah. So you could, we're, we get into, we're starting to talk about this. You come back uh, with this band Gage. So, tell, yeah. which I liked, I liked that CD, by the way. Um, oh, I'd like to give a review was a highlight of the, you know, cause it was an honest review, you know, like I, I knew you probably, you might not like that kind of music or something, but I thought it was an honest review, you know? So oh, cool. I appreciated that, you know? I thought some of the, you know, some of the reviews, I like the, I just want the honest ones. Don't, you know, don't like get hung up on that I was in SSD, you know? Cause I didn't go around trying to use that as my business card, you know? Hey, I'm, you know, I never, I, I think the only time we opened up the Mighty Boston's in New York and it was actually a mistake, you know? The only time that I leveraged anything from SSD into anything, and it was probably a mistake cause that was like our second show and we weren't ready for that. You know, my singer wasn't ready for that. I mean, you know, anyways, so Gage was the same idea. It was building another team, okay? I had, I had kind of spent a little time at GE. Now I, I spent like 90 to like, uh, I mean, um, yeah. So we're going like late eighties, you know, into like uh, 90, 91, let's say, okay? I started getting to the stock market actually, believe it, okay? And I, I, I started to day, not day trade, but trade a lot, okay? And I, I had, I made some heavily, heavily investments in Apple. Uh, Apple was like, I think it was trading maybe in the twenties. It wasn't, it didn't tank out yet, but I started to get into Apple, uh, Motorola, pre-cell phones. I was thinking about, this. so I was going to be this like stockbroker, you know, basically, but I was still as an engineer, but I was really getting into that. And then all of a sudden my father dies in 92. Okay. Which, you know, was a big thing for me because, uh, you know, he was, uh, he was like a rock for me. Uh, I, I kind of look back. I wish I, I, I wish during the SSD years and the eighties and maybe, you know, like I, I, I kind of should have spent more time with my father because I guess I didn't know he was going to be gone so quick. So he died, he got sick in 90, maybe 90 brain tumor. And I remember when he got sick, I went to the, I went to like Harvard in 90 and it was either probably it's either he lasted 18 months. So I'm guessing it was either half a 90 or 91 but i went to like harvard i pulled all these books on brain tumors down so tried to figure out what was going on i did all the research it said he was going to die in 18 months he had a really a grade high grade glioblastoma so i knew he was going to go then but he'd already had the tumor removed and he was kind of like he wasn't really there so i, I kind of regret that so anyways my father dies i'm lost once again i said uh, i need something to save my life now and I picked music again. Music saved my life in, in SSD, I thought, because, you know, I, I told you about that period from 75 to 80. It was a little bit, you know, I was, I avoided a lot of bad things, okay? Let's just say I was lucky, maybe, okay? There's a lot of things that could have gone the other way. You know, I had a couple of friends that got stabbed and I happened to be not there that night. So there's a lot of weird things that happened that saved me, actually. And I was the, you know, I was the center of troublemaking. So like, uh, you know, if anyone should have got, uh, heard it should have been me you know so uh anyways i you know the music saved my life it kind of rescued me from i thought if i continued doing that it wasn't going to end up good you know so once again i need my father dies i need music to save me i decided i'm gonna start gauge another like you know i still had balls i guess back then because uh you know it's even worse who's gonna play with me you know <laughs> and i'm older you know i'm like uh i'm like in my 30s you know i'm like who the hell is going to want to be in a band with me? It was a tough, a tough sell, you know. I really, uh, anyways, I I persevered and a couple different lineups. You know, I almost almost quit a few times, a couple times. I had this, I, I could funny stories. You know, I almost could have quit, but anyways, I stuck with it and we put those records out. End up finding guys that once again off the street that were never destined to be in bands, never destined to sing in bands. 
I'm talking about guys off the street of East Boston, you know, uh, you know, they were in my band and I loved it. You know, I thought it was great. You know, <laughs> these weren't the typical kind of guys in the band. So, and I thought we made great music and that band was set up to, to appreciate recording music. I wanted to do what everything SSD couldn't do. I wanted to, I wanted to have songs that you could sing, you know, singing songs that based around singing a melody. I wanted to, I wanted to appreciate the studio, embrace it, love it. And I built, a, I built my own recording studio to make those records. So it was, it was about the entire process, you know? Like I brought, I brought cello and violinist in. Who the hell am I to bring a cello and violinist in, in my cellar to record a record? This is insane, but I did it. <laughs> and, it and I pulled it off. I pulled it off, man. Like if you listen to that, I mean, I had a range, I had to sit there and arrange a violinist and a cello. I don't know how to arrange shit, you know? But I pulled it off and I just, these are people I, I mean, I just, you know, it's like the connections in life, you know? So those are the things I remember, like, you know, the day that I brought this violinist and cellos down and I said, man, I hear this on this song, you know, please help me with it, you know. So that band cost me a lot of money. I spent a lot of my own money. I got out of the market, which cost me a lot of money. I mean, a lot of money. <laughs> that was like the time to stay sounds in like, the market. Sounds you know? like but see, that doesn't mean anything to me. I, I, I'm trying to tell you that because I, I have no regrets, you know. I honestly have no regrets because... You know, I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm disabled, you know, I don't have a job, I've been out of work since 2017. You know, I never, you know, I'm not gonna say I don't I don't need a car and I don't need a roof over my head because I do and I need the tools to, to make music or make art or whatever, you know. So I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sit here in line and say I don't I don't need money, but I'm gonna I'm gonna say that money doesn't drive me, you know um it doesn't that's not my like that's not my goal it's never been my goal it's not my focus you know so i don't regret gauge you know I, no one knows gauge okay <laughs> like you know it i'm like i said that review is great but very people understand gauge and 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 people that know me from um from ssd probably it's probably not going to be a connection because they would have to be song people you know like like i think a person's like who like is a song i can just say is like really into songs you know like uh, by themselves the song i think they would get gauge you know but if you're not into songs and you're, you're not you're probably not going to get it but anyways a long thing very proud of both bands and they're both the journeys of both bands and what we put out were like the were like the rewards you know sure you know um, you brought up something just before and it was a question i had and it's probably a little hard but um yep. you know you've dealt with some severe medical issues basically you're basically handicapped from this GE job and you know, you're the straight edge guy. You had to go on opiates and get a yep. medical marijuana license. So talk about this whole dark twisted path you've endured. And also I can't help but get away from the fact that thinking about that you gave up the music dream for the security and you almost died from it. So. Yeah. Guess. Well, I got to tell you one thing, cause you've mentioned, like, I'm just trying to like, the one thing I thought through my whole life is that if you live the right way and you do good for other people, that in the end, you'll be, you'll, you don't have anything to worry about. <laughs> you know, like that was my, you know, I always thought that if you just, if you do things, you don't really have to worry about, like things will take care of themselves. Okay. So I did, I did think that. Okay. So I did put my, my body in a lot of bad positions and I didn't, um, you know, I didn't, uh, certainly didn't protect my body. Okay. Uh, and, uh, that, you know, that's just, you know, I'm talking in several areas. I mean, I, I used to do these uh, sand ingestion tests, you know, I never used to wear a mask, you know, we're, we're blowing silica all over the place. And I'm sitting there, you know, developing these, 
these tests to evaluate how much sand goes through an engine, you know, like in the desert. And uh, so like, you know, I'm just, I, I, I really uh, have a sense of loyalty to, my, to these company, you know, like to this company that I was gonna do everything it took to, to give them the data they needed. And sometimes even put my health at, at risk, you know? And, and, you know, it's not right. I've learned, you know, since that, certainly that flawed way of thinking, cause they don't give a shit about you, you know, in the end, they don't give a fuck about you. So, you know, you know I, get, I don't get a do over, unfortunately. So, so going back, I can tell you, I look at my life in segments, okay? 20 year segments happen to just be first 20 years, okay? just got me up to the point of SSD, that middle, that middle, uh, you know, that middle leg of the, of the, of the next 20 years and into the, into the, we're like SSD into gauge actually. Okay. And some work involved in that. Then the last 20 years has been this back problem. So this back problem started me like around 2000. So it's been about 20 years. Okay. And I don't know how it's, really happened. Uh, nothing sticks out at me. I just know one day my right leg started going numb and uh, I couldn't walk, you know, and from there, you know, you, you open your, you know, open my whole world up to the medical system in this country and doctors and trusting doctors and trusting people and, you know, trusting hospitals. And, you know, I, <clears throat> so the first time I faced this kind of pain. So I never took a painkill in my life at this point, right? Uh, even when I had, I had my wisdom teeth out, I remember during SSD, grueling pain and I, I never took a painkiller because I was tougher than that, you know? So this back thing came on to me. I never felt anything like this, never felt any pain like this, but it was like, it was like shooting down my entire leg, you know, changed my life. I, I had it for like a year. I did invest, you know, do my own research on surgeries and stuff, trusting people, saw multiple surgeons. Ultimately, couldn't take the pain any longer. I, I started taking uh, like Percocet, you know, cause I took, Percocet, Flexerol, and uh, Soma or something. No, anything to kind of manage manage the situation. Didn't get too much into the straight edge thing at this point. Just thinking like, <laughs> I was thinking more like I got to work, you know, because uh, I'm, you know, this last twenty years is an important important period because I won't have a pension if I don't really work, you know. So you know, do I just? I remember along the way, people saying, ah, you should just, you know, go on disability, go on disability. Like, why the fuck would I want to go on disability? Man? Especially because I got to tell you, when I used to go to work every day, I can say this with complete and utter honesty. I enjoyed every minute of the day that I went to work. I loved going to work every day because I made my, I, I didn't like go into their work and like, you know, go into their structure. I went to my, like, I went to work every day, my job, my structure, my place, you know? Very rarely did I have to interact with those people. And when I did, we battled, you know, we, we butted heads or whatever, you know, but I, so I had a whole different approach. I've made my job enjoyable. A couple long, I had, I, they tried to take me down so many times, you wouldn't believe it. And that's when it got ugly, you know, made me really upset because I, I was, uh, I was so loyal to them, you know, and yet these people were trying to take me down. Like I'm telling you, unbelievable stories. I could, I could spend a whole podcast on what they tried to do to me, okay? And all of it was like complete bullshit. These fake fucking phony people. I mean, I almost, I almost, uh, you know, this is like, I shouldn't go up. Nah, let's skip that story. But I almost, I almost had it like, I almost like good workplace violence because this guy literally made. This, I gotta tell a story. Fuck it, I gotta tell a story. You can cut it out later. But I'm, I'm, I'm like, I'm really into my engineering career. And we had this test. It was for this uh, CF34, which is an engine for a Bombardier plane. Okay. And I'm this compressor that the engineers designed, we're testing it. And the engine is performing terrible, compressor is performing terrible. 
Well, this guy comes over. He used to come over with his, his little notepad every day, you know, come down, see how things are going. Well, come to find out he's going back to meetings saying that I was fucking up the test, okay? Blaming me. So I was so blown away by this that this guy would be going back to meetings, pointing the finger at me. I was like, so I, I learned this important lesson. There are people in life that make themselves look good by putting you down, okay? And I learned, that was a big thing right there. So I was like 91, I'm like, man, this is a whole new level of phoniness. They're actually gonna make themselves look like by putting you down. So I went after this guy. I mean, I went after this guy. I was in front of his office. I don't know what would have happened, okay? But some human resources person took me out and drove me outside the plant or whatever. Now, this is many years later, you know, workplace violence is a much bigger thing. This hadn't, we hadn't any formal plans back then. And I, I could have got, I would have got fight if that happened, you know, 10 years later or five years later. But it's an important story because there's shocks out there, man. And if you're not aware of it, if you're naive and you go through life thinking that everything's going to work out good, if you think positive about everything, everything will turn out okay. That's not the story, man, <laughs> because that's not life. It's not real, you know. And that's the best way I can say it, that um, uh, I had a choice to make, which was, you know, to work, to continue my career, to continue to do what I'm doing. And I took these medicines, okay? I, I, I think in many ways, I was the poster child for OxyContin. I mean, I hit it right at the right time, okay? And I was on a lot of it, okay? I was on 240 milligrams a day, you know, high doses. I've been on as much as 700 milligrams of oxycodone a day. I've been on lot lot of medicine okay i have a extremely high tolerance okay and the other thing is i don't i don't get like naughty on medicine i kind of plow through pain you know but eventually all medicines stop working um so the medicine thing isn't the long-term solution i was looking for someone to help me i just was trying to buy time you know keep on working trying to buy time i've ended up having five or six operations you know multiple fusions i've got a I've got a real long fusion from T6 all the way to my lumbar. And, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, I won't lie, it's uh, challenging, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's like the last 20 years have been a waste, you know, in many sense, you know, I, I, I worked, I worked, you know, most of it, but it was, you know, I probably was performing at 70% of my potential, which isn't bad, better 70% is way better than most people. Uh, mm -hmm. But, you know, wasn't my tops. And, uh, and I, I did look, you know, the only thing about the relation of straight edge, I used to think, you know, I used to think that uh, it's funny. <laughs> I just think it's funny that the guy who was like pumping straight edge is now the guy who's the poster child for rocks. I, I mean, I, I would like to even make that poster. It would be funny to me, you know, because it's, it's, it's ironic. It's, it's life, you know, it, there's no certainty in life, you know, so you can, when you're 20, you can say yada, 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 yada. But you don't know in the in those other phases in life what, what life's gonna throw at you. I mean, at twenty, and I'm gonna I'm gonna make a statement here. I believe in straight edge today more than I ever believed in it. Okay, I believe in it. If even possible, I believe in it more than when I was twenty. Okay, only from new perspective I've gained from you know the other twenty years and stuff that you know. I don't even know why people would even want to take heroin to be honest or any of this stuff. I don't even. I don't even, uh, you know, I had to take it because of this pain, but recreationally, you know, I don't know why someone would want to put them through through all that, you know, all the, because it's not easy living, you know, for the, for the little, I don't know, because, <laughs> you know, 
I it's it's hard for me to relate to because I I'm you know a pain perspective. I'm just trying to I'm trying to be normal, you know. And and what I you know what I know about junkies, I think, or you know maybe I don't want to call them junk, whatever. What I know about people that use, I think they also want to be normal, you know. So in the end, they're doing the same thing I'm doing, almost like trying to be normal, you know. So whatever how they ever get into it, in the end, they're just trying to be normal. They're not even trying to get high, you know. Uh, now, to, uh, shift to the weed thing, you know, I, of course, a lot of my lyrics were against marijuana again, but I mean, I had no perspective from it, didn't know anything, what it was about really, okay, never really tried it, uh, maybe I took a hit once when I was, you know, 16 or something, but never really knew what uh, the effects of marijuana was, so I, you know, I wrote, I wrote about a lot of things that I maybe didn't know a lot about, you know, but I made general statements, which, you know, maybe the guy now wouldn't make those statements, once again, I still believe in straight edge more than anything, but I think, you know, marijuana is an interesting uh, medication or, you know, uh, plant. It's a shame that we haven't studied it for the last 50 years because, you know, I think it, on a personal level, I think it's probably going to affect different people different ways. I think different strains are going to affect people different ways. And I think there's too much randomness right now that, you know, to send a guy like me into the and, and I spent a lot of money trying different strains and all. I mean, I spent, you wouldn't believe how much money I've spent trying to learn as much about this as I've grown my own plants. Okay. Uh, just to learn about it. Okay. Um, and it, you know, it, I think it's something that shouldn't be treated lightly. I think it it's, I don't think any young kid should really do it. That's my own thing. I don't, I mean, you can do, you know, there's plenty of time they, to I do think it. They've actually shown that like the, it creates a problem with, brain growth if you do it too much before like 18 basically that's basically what they found out yeah i don't even know what the research says but i'm going to tell you my intuition yeah i don't think you're gonna i don't think it's a performing a performance enhancing drug <laughs> you know i think it's pers on a personal level i think it's good for anxiety maybe you know like a, i think it's tremendous for anxiety like i know all the ssr i like during this pain thing all these doctors try to put me on antidepressants they insist that I'm on, I'm, I'm depressed all the time. I'm not saying I'm depressed. I'm depressed because I'm under this pain that you wouldn't believe. I feel like there's an elephant on my back right now, okay? Tell me you're not gonna be depressed if you felt like, I mean, I feel the pressure of an elephant sitting on my back right now, okay? So you tell me, tell the average guy he's not gonna be depressed if an elephant's sitting on his back 24 seven. I wake up during the night, not from like, I, I wake up because the pain hurts so much, you know? Every 20 minutes, I have to roll over my side, my back, my front. I have to get out of bed. I mean, it never was like this. This is only recently, okay? So, you know, life's going to throw a lot of curveballs at you. And I think it'd be naive to just say, hey, you know, you're gonna, you know, this is how your life's going to be. You're going to be in this box. Who the hell knows, you know? I think it's ironic with my, with my inner, do I, do I regret? I regret from the sense that, uh, you know, I've had to suffer a lot, you know? Do I, do I regret the learn, the, uh, empathy, the understanding, the compassion that I've learned over the last 20 years? Absolutely not. You know, I've learned more about life in the last 20 years than I've learned the first 40, you know? So uh, it's a tough lesson, man. I, I don't think anyone would pay the dues that I've learned, but I've, I've learned a lot. I learned a lot about myself that I never knew, you know? And I've learned a lot about straight edge, about drugs, about, you know, about mental illness, about depression, anxiety i mean i used to, i remember i used to you know i wasn't a i wasn't uh wasn't open-minded to all these ailments when i was younger you know I, like people would tell me about anxiety or 
or uh, panic attacks. And I, I'd be like, I don't know what you're talking about. I didn't think they existed. You know, I, I, I was like a denier, you know, and uh, no, I, I was wrong. You know, I was wrong. And so that, you know, that's perspective that the 40 year old guy didn't know when he was 20 that, you know, and I've taken even a step further that, uh, you know, uh, you know, I can, I can, you know, straight edge was a choice and, and believe me, it's an important choice. I, I think that choice needs to be there, but I would never judge uh, someone, you know, because I didn't, you know, I'm not in their shoes. I don't know what they're going through. Who am I to say you can't, whatever you got, you know, they got you know, I'm, I just want the choices to be there for them to make, you know, like, see, I didn't think there was a choice there for me. Okay. So that's, uh, I'm not judgmental on people, what they got to do. I do think it's funny that now you look back, it seems like, it almost seems like everyone's path ends up that way to so many levels, you know, people are getting there different ways, you know, so <laughs> you can get there the way where you end up going to 12 step programs, you know, which I, I might even, uh, the fact that those people can be that, like, like spend like 24 years using and all of a sudden one day stop. I have a lot of uh, respect to those people, you know, cause I don't think that's easy to do. I don't even know what flipped the switches, what flipped the switch in their brain after all those years to say that, you know, because, uh, you know, I don't know, I, you know, I know personally, like, you know, every drug has its own little thing. And, uh, but you know, everyone's gotta, gotta figure it out. You know, I, I, I go on TikTok. I mean, if you ever go on TikTok, everyone on there is like an ex heroin addict. So, you know, you hear the stories, you know, the sad stories, a lot of them, uh, uh, you know, stories, these people have come back from it, you know, those are great stories, but you know, it's a tough, a tough lesson to learn uh, getting there, you know? Uh, sure is. Sure I guess is. I don't have the answer, but you know, so it's, I want to definitively on the marijuana thing. I currently uh, still use marijuana, you know, right now. Um, in a perfect world, I would I would stop using the marijuana. I, I don't right now. I don't feel uh, currently I can because when I have like I, I stopped the opiates about eight months ago after the last surgery, but and I stopped the marijuana for like thirty or forty days. But I found I found myself flipping into like a real mental depressive state where I was like you know bordering on suicide. You know, so I felt that I I needed to get some more time, um, you know, some more time. And so I elected to stay on the marijuana for a little bit longer. I, you know, I think it brings, it's, it brings a whole new set of, uh, marijuana brings a whole new set of, uh, uh, issues, issues along with it. You know, like, like, like you, uh, you know, I might not want to have an appetite. All of a sudden I smoked the marijuana for my anxiety and all of a sudden I'm hungry as a bastard or something, you know, or some people smoke it and they get, uh, paranoid. I hear, yeah. you know, so, so, you know what I'm saying? That there's the differences. It's, 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 it's a powerful drug. Don't get me wrong. Um, but we don't know enough about it, you know? And I, I would, if I was a young kid, I would kind of stay away from it. That would be my advice. I don't think you got plenty of years to check it out. That's my best advice, man. Uh, to a young kid, man, you're going to have some, you're going to have some things when you're 40 and you're 15 or 60, you're going to need maybe something, you know? Yeah. So uh, keep that option available. <laughs> That's all I can say. You know, I, I don't think you should, uh, take it off the table when you're young, you know? Yeah, for sure. For sure. Um, before this interview, I promised you that we would wait till the end of the interview to talk about politics. Um, I, I was, one reason I really reached out to you was because, you know, Donald Trump has really fueled a lot of your rage. Um, I don't know, take that subject where you want to. I don't really even have a question. 
so Donald much. Trump represents, sorry, Donald Trump represents my entire life, the entire fight against my life, you know? Donald Trump stands for lying. He's a fraud, he's a con man. Donald Trump is that manager I see at G that I, I, I worked my entire life to, to fucking expose and, and, you know, and just rally against him. You know, I, 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 you know that manager at G was a fucking phony fake guy. I never could relate to that guy, you know? Uh, I could, you know, like I said, I could tell a whole entire story of, of the, you know, I really tried to, once again, the team thing entered when I hit the GE, you know, I was trying to bring another team a change the whole culture in a corporate way, you know, and this Trump guy, he came in 16. So I was still working there. I, he came on the scenes. I could, I could see this whole right wing thing building. I saw the union guys in 208 start to drift towards away from the uh, Democratic Party and towards Republicans. I saw the whole thing. I got the emails from uh, all the people in, in exempt people in management who would send the emails about the Tea Party and fuck Obama and this and that. You could see the, all the race, you know, all that racist thing kind of coming. But here's this, the thing you got to understand. It was coming from people that you never seen before. These weren't the right wing guys. This wasn't the guy that blew up the building in um, Oklahoma. <clears throat> Yeah, actually, Gage wrote a song about that, funny. But I mean, this wasn't the guy that blew up the building in Oklahoma, um, because you know we all lived through those cults and those right-wing militia movements. And I remember when that happened, no one knew like was there more militias out there, you know? And government, I mean, the FBI did a good job of you know going to Michigan or whatever and Ohio and breaking those militia groups up, you know. But but they probably weren't huge numbers. Who the hell knew what they were, you know? Uh, I know that that was a you know a seminal moment. I think that you know we had the uh, we had uh, we obviously had uh, the guy in uh, Guyana. You know that cult happened. We had this misinformation. We had you know the guy in Waco, Texas. You know we had this culty culty behavior. And let's face it, even hardcore has some culty kind of uh, history. You know, uh, so you know you can't ignore that. And I think you know at this moment you could see it festering in 2016. I saw, I, I can remember this moment where like 10 guys were in my office. Guys used to hang around my office because, you know, we're all kind of bonding, you know. <laughs> and these guys, you could see they were heading into the Trump direction. And I, and I heard them all like, you know, kind of like, you know, the locker room, you know, oh, Trump, oh, you know. And I said, time out. And I had to yell, time out. You fucking guys don't know what you're messing with. This guy is a bad man. I said, I followed this guy since the 80s because when I, you know, hung around the, I mean, I went to New York, I used to tabloid paper and watch all that, you know, more downy shit and all that rate, you know, all that talk. And, you know, he was on the tabloid all Trump, you know? So, I, you know, with a Geraldo shows or whatever, you know, I knew his act, you know? It's fucking poor. It's, he's like, he is the con man when I think of him, okay? I used to, this guy's a G, like my manager was like a con man, you know? I used to, I look at, when I look at those two faces, I have the same, uh, disgust <laughs> when I think when I see my manager's face and I see Trump's face and so I'm, t I'm warning all my friends at the same time I see my friends uh you know uh people aren't aware of it I see them they're all started to buy weapons you know guys that never would have a weapon started buying guns uh you could see it all happening you know this uh the 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 real 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 uh you know just negative talk, racist talk, bullshit. You could see, and these are union guys. Union guys would always vote Democrat. So you could see the change, the change. I mean, the Republican party saw it coming, but I saw it coming, you know? I saw this transformation. 
appealing to these people, you know, I mean, I saw things coming that shocked me because I knew these are things I saw in 1980 with bands like Screwdriver and, you know, white nationalist kind of things, the KKK. I mean, you know, SSD kind of rallied against that stuff at times. You know, we saw, we saw, if those guys came to Boston, we pro, we went again, we didn't went after them, you know. I was seeing it now at my company, you know. I could see the festering of it. And I was like, this isn't going to good. So, anyways, uh, he won, you know. I was shocked. And I said, okay, it's going to be entertaining another four years. And I said, you know, at least I'll have something to think about or do, you know. So, so you know, only thing I was just trying to, I don't want to tell people anything, okay? That's not my thing, okay? I don't tell people. I just want to, if people can't, you know, I'm not sure if everyone thinks like, like basically I just use, I don't even like, I don't like Google stuff and try to, I, I just like think things out, okay? I'll just walk you through an exercise because it might not be, let's talk about vax, vaccine and vaccines, okay? Here's how I think about vaccines, okay? Historically, we've had these viruses over the years, you know, uh, thousands of, you know, what mankind been around, uh, uh, Egyptians 4,000 years ago, something like that. You know, these, these viruses have come up historically, you know, through cycles and periods of year. This isn't something new, okay? You know, I think vaccines might go back to the, you know, uh, 10th century or whatever, you know, Chinese people trying to figure out how to, because these plagues would wipe out, you know, 500 million people or something, you know? So this isn't something new. So th this is how I think of things. I'm like, so they were, they were, you know, they weren't technically there as proficient as we know, but they were still trying to solve problems, cure disease, right? Cure pestilence, make sure your crops can grow, okay? This is all science and technology, man. So, um, so the evolution of uh, advancements in science, you know, we've got vaccines now. We've got like, uh, what, three, three vaccines about to be on the market, maybe as many as five or six, right? So when I think of this, and I just look at the numbers, there's six vaccines, there's, uh, you know, 15,000 people work at the CDC, 15,000 people work at the FDA, there's, you know, every government has their own uh, infectious disease experts, okay? If someone's not screaming that, hey, you know, you're gonna die, your arm's gonna fall off right now, I gotta guess that numbers say it's pretty odd that, you know, these all these people are colluding against the people, you know, they're all colluding. It just doesn't make sense to me, you know what I'm saying? So I don't get into like the, the real specifics. I'm just saying the numbers don't make sense. We could not have 15,000 uh, FDA and 15,000 CD all, you know, saying, you know, okay, let's go with it. And these peer reviewed science, you know, doctors throughout the country. It just doesn't make sense. Now, is there someone who's probably waving a red flag? Yes, I believe in the 20% rule, okay? 20% of the people are fucking freaks, okay? And they're gonna complain about something or they're gonna, you know, they probably have a job issue where, you know, they're they're getting kicked out of the FDA or something. So there's always gonna be someone saying something, okay? But they're the kind of like, they're the noise, you know? The real centrist opinion is somewhere in here, right? You got the people that are purists who just like, you know, think this way, you got the crazy people and you got this, 60% in the middle, okay, who's got to figure it out. I'm just trying to relate on how I think, okay? Other people might not think how I think, and certainly you might say, well, that's your perspective, okay? I'm just saying that here's how I think. I don't think Bill Gates is uh, developing vaccines to control America. I don't think Monsanto's creating seeds to control the food we eat. I believe, I believe engineers' intention was to 
create uh, seeds that made the, the crops more resistant to disease, pestilence, uh, weather, only to help people. Now, could something go bad along the way or go off course? Most definitely. <laughs> There's nothing perfect in life. Uh, I remember there was an acne drug that actually had a acne in my shoulders at one time. And it, I read it like it, it caused like, you know, if you gave it to a woman, you should have a uh, fetus, you know, the fetus would get problems. So, you know, there's no, there's nothing per, anytime you put something in your body, you know, something could happen, but I just don't believe in it. You know, I believe there's too much of this, uh, uh, you know, this right wing conspiracy talk. And I believe it's going to be our downfall if we don't correct, you know, we need to auto correct. I don't, I think we might be past the point of auto correction, but I'm going to tell you, if we allow people to just, and we allow, for the last four years, the Republicans allowed Trump to just continue another, another conspiracy, another crazy idea. No one corrected him. You know, if Mitch McConnell, some of the other guys had said, wait a minute, time out. You're full of shit, Trump or something. No, someone need to, no one called him out on it ever, right? I mean, the Democrats call him out and CNN or MSC, but I mean, you know, what does that do? That just creates more divide, you know? Really, it had to be their own team policing that, okay? So, you know, some people, you know, uh, you know, I've tried to reach out. I've lost a lot of friends through this Trump thing. I've lost some friends in the hardcore. I've lost some, lo I lost all my friends at GE, okay? Those friends, you know, that was like 35 years of friendship and um, I've lost them all. But, you know, I don't think there's really, uh, I don't think the two can coexist. I mean, you can be a, you can be a Republican. I mean, a real Republican, old school Republican. And coexist, but you can't you can't believe in conspiracies about eating babies and and all that shit. And that 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 that, that like I said, if that if that world exists with my world, then I'm I'm gone. You know, <laughs> I'm gone because I I don't make up stories. You know, I'm not that I'm not that creative. You know, so you know that's kind of what Trump means to me. You know, um, I've been somewhat politically active my whole life. I mean, I was aware of uh, you know the first. And you can say this is what Trump means. My first political awareness was like 68 and 72 elections of, of Nixon, you know? And what I, you know, that left it an indelible impression that this guy is a fucking fraud, you know? And, uh, you know, so that's what I, I but I mean, I, I, in general, I think that about all politicians, but I think, um, I think it's the level of, of phoniness, you know, when it comes down to politicians, because I'm gonna tell you another thing, where it's politicians or leaders in corporations, you don't get to those positions without that fake shit, okay? I'm not saying it's right, because it isn't right, it's wrong. I'm just telling you the way the system is set up right now, like the system <laughs> that kind of beat me down or the system is that you right now will not get to be a, a senator unless you got that, some degree of that fake shit in you, okay? It's just how much of it is fake, you know? Right, I think right. the Republicans took it to a new level. That's so that is my passion right there. Um, it's really not about I's and D's, you know? Um, Cause you know, I understand the importance of a two party system. And actually at one time, I think I believed that a three, uh, you know, more parties was better. I'm, I don't even know if that's, I don't know. You know, I believe our government is a amazing attempt at trying to organize a society into kind of some kind of fair process. And I don't think it's the institutions that are the problem. I think it's the people that are the problem, okay? So to attack the government and to just say, you know, whatever, storm the government, storm this, I think you're being naive because, you know, here goes back to my thinking process, okay? So, so you tell me that we're gonna storm the government and then I'm gonna stop believing these motherfuckers to now be my new leaders? 
I don't think that's, you know what I'm saying? I mean, it, that doesn't add up. I, like I'll trade in a new lead. I'll try to, I'll trade in an old leader for a new leader when I see something like, you know, like, like if I was uh, trading, you know, if I was upgrading, uh, you know, uh, an average NBA player to like LeBron James or something, you know, like yeah, show, show me the upgrade or something, but just don't, you know, don't show me that upgrade and say, yeah, yeah, this is what I want. You know, I mean, don't tell me that there's a, a bunch of people in, and I thought the same way about hardcore too. Don't tell me, yeah, we're going to all, you know, do this, but I gonna, I'm now going to believe that you're going to be better than them. You know, I, I didn't see it, you know, maybe it's out there, but I didn't see it. So, you know, I'm not going to just, uh, make those kind of statements to say, you know, uh, like, you know, whatever. I just, I just think if people are empowered, you know, empowered to make, you know, the kids will have to say the whole thing was, you know, I didn't think the kids had any say when I was growing up, you know, like, I mean, I didn't ever say to name the golf course after a fucking pedophile. I never say to continue to play hockey because I thought I was one of the best players there was. I didn't ever say really too much, you know, so kids will say, we're supposed to say, you know what, I'm going to find my voice. It may take me a little while, but I'm going to find my voice. And then you're never going to shut me up, you know, but it took me a while, you know, even t- during the eighties, I remember, I remember having to give a presentation at Northeast in front of a crowd of my peers who were students, right? I was petrified. I couldn't even speak publicly in front of them. Petrified. I mean, you know, this is a guy who's up on stage in front of people. I couldn't feel comfortable in front of my own peers who I went to school with for all these years, okay? Well, I had to get through that. I had to work through it. This is probably like 84, 85, 86. The technique I used, I went up there and I just screamed at him. I went up in front of the audience, school, my class, and I just yelled at him. <laughs> it allowed me to get through it, you know? But it was, you know, but I think, I think things like that allowed me to be a little bit more self-confident. You know, when I showed up at GE, and I had all these people trying to, shocks trying to eat me up, you know? And the idealist guy who was doing all these crazy things, you know, I wasn't gonna let them eat me up. So that's all I can say what Trump really is. He's the worst, you know, he's the worst there is. Well, he's the best at what he is, but he's the worst, he's the worst, you know? And and uh, I've also said this, that, that I'm not even, I'm not even mad at Trump. I'm not, I mean, I'm not even, like, I hate, no, I don't say, I really don't like the guy, but, I'm more upset about all my friends and all the people right now that are still hanging on to him. That's the real scary thing. The scary thing isn't about Trump. It's about the people that can't see the truth, you know, because right. Some of us is so obvious, you know? Yeah. You know, there was an article in the New York times that a couple of days ago where they uh, talked about where, where a uh, reporter went through the social media of people who are highly radicalized right wing now yep. and looked at their, email looked at their social media from three years ago and it wasn't close to that really it so was become like radicalized, they had just been right? so radicalized by all this stuff that's been going on right i think the woman who died at the Cong- at congress was one of those um so i well, guess you, know, my, you said my, you said that thing about radicalization it's important because i saw that radicalization with women at my office okay buying guns getting this whole thing you know, Fox News has a big, a big role in that. Absolutely. I, I monitor Fox News. Okay. And you know, their gotcha TV, they, they, they know how to tweak like the average quote that 60% in the middle, they know how to tweak them by, by telling these little stories about how this guy was denied his right or something like this, you know, very, they're very uh, good at what they do. And, you know, they peak in the night as Sean Han, you know, they peak as they go up in the night, you know, they get more radical, more kind of crazy. And, um, you know, it's, 
you've got to say it's a form of mind control in many ways because it's it's really well done, you know. Um, I think the other the other news outlet, outlets have an agenda, obviously. I don't think it's quite as uh, nefarious as Fox News, you know. But, you know, so I, you know, and of course we've got the First Amendment staring at all this stuff, okay? And I'm not sure the First Amendment, I'm a big believer in the First Amendment. Freedom of press, I think, is a very important thing. You can never take away freedom of press. You know, his attack on the freedom of press should have been stopped immediately by by both parties and everyone else in Washington said you can't attack the press, you know? I mean, if the press is biased, whatever, you, you know, it's biased because it's Fox News. If it wasn't Fox News, it wouldn't be biased probably, you know? Um, I just feel that um, people need to stand up and speak out, you know, ultimately about this whole situation. And, and I think people in hardcore have been far too quiet about this. I think, uh, you know, it, it, when people say, hey, I don't want to get political, you know, it could be the code word that uh, they don't want to say who they like, you know, I don't know. I think they should be well, a little bit more clear, you know. Like I said, we could keep this going for hours, but for uh, brevity's sake, I, I kind of wanted to close it with one final, well, I have, I have a few, something to ask after that, but yeah, I just kind of wanted to go into, um, you know, there was Nostradamus and now yes. there's a Nostra Almos. Yes. Um, so what does Nostra Almos think of the future of music and live performance, uh, after, especially in this era? Yeah, Nostra Almos thinks that, you know, it might be a, might be a changing time right now, you know, because, uh, I think it, a lot of it depends on how, how well we come back from this, uh, this virus thing, right? I mean, from the beginning of this, when this virus thing happened, I was pretty on it pretty quick that I knew that this was gonna change our lives. Just because once again, thinking through it, thinking how these Asian countries were always wearing masks and always worried about viruses and how we never, really, never felt that here. I just said, man, uh, the, the hens, what is it? The hens have come home the roost or something. You know what I mean? I could just see it. You could see the world was changing for a, in a significant way in, in 20, you know, with the, and, 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 you know, I think Trump had a layup. I mean, he could have, he could have, this is like, this would have been the easiest thing as a president, just let the science kind of dictate everything. And then what happened, you couldn't blame him for anything. Well, he, he screwed, he fucked that up. You know, only one guy could fuck that up. He fucked it up. Cause I think that would have helped him get through to, into the elections. You know, he fucked it up. Only he could fuck it up. So I think, uh, you know, live music, I don't know, you know, I guess these young kids think differently. Maybe they want to get into a sweaty club like that, breathing on each people because they think they're, you know, they think they're um, immune to it, you know, but it's really not about them. It's when they go home and spread it, right? And, and the whole thing from the beginning has been about breaking our healthcare system. You know, it's always been about that, about trying to manage this situation so it doesn't break our healthcare system. So, you know, for all the people who don't understand the mass, it's really, it's just making it so you can't, you know, you can go to a hospital if you're sick, right? Imagine if you can't go because the healthcare system broke down because we had too much. So that's always about managing the numbers. You know, I mean, I remember when the deaths were like 60,000. I think I remember seeing Trump going up there saying, oh, it looks like we're going to top out around 60,000. You know, I remember because I was when the numbers, you know, the, there was a 2 million number and that was if we didn't do nothing. And you can see how it can get to that because we're almost at four. 500,000 right now, right? If you didn't do anything, any shutdowns, it would have made it to the 2 million mark easily, right? So once again, numbers don't lie. You know, the things in life that are, that guide us are really, the, you know, the mathematical equations that, that guide, uh, you know, the world, you know, the uh, gravity, momentum, 
you know, conservation of energy and stuff. So, so these things don't change. The numbers don't change. They're the other things to tell the truth. You know, if people are people, you know, this, this is the overriding message that I've learned over the, my life right now is we're getting more greedy and more selfish of a, of a, of a society. Like, like, um, you know, the whole, that whole last segment of my life, the two thousands, you know, I've, you know, just from my interactions with hospitals and doctors, I've seen the greed, I've seen the selfishness, I've seen it at work, I've seen it everywhere, okay? I've seen people basically just out for their own self-interest. So I, I've seen it grow and grow and grow and grow. And, um, you know, ultimately, I think that's how it will end. Uh, we're going to eat each other, you know? And, uh, you know, so Nostradamus has been predicting these kind of things. I mean, the good thing about <laughs> making predictions is, people can change the outcome of the future, right? By taking action. So, uh, you know, whatever, I'm not trying to scare people, whatever. And, and also I'm, I'm kind of laughing at it because I also think in making predictions like Nostradamus did, you can, you can kind of know where to hit on, right? <laughs> I mean, there's like certain tendencies that you gain over historical perspective, right? I'm sure Nostradamus had the advantage of probably learning about some, some things, that, events that led up to his predictions, you know? and projected forward that, you know, society and future generations would have to deal with these same kind of uh, things, right? These same uh, things that challenge the world, you know? And uh, so when I, when I joke, I kind of like to call myself Captain Obvious too, because I'm trying to say, these aren't real, you know, I'm not trying, I don't want anyone to think that I think I'm a visionary, like I'm seeing visions, okay? I think it's like kind of funny, right? It's a joke, you know? It's like, I'm seeing things that are kind of obvious, you know? And if you don't see them, you know, if you don't see them, it's because you're not paying attention, you know, and that's a, that, that brings you to another point. There's a bunch of people that are out there saying, don't watch the news. Don't pay attention to what's going on. Just do your own thing. Well, I don't believe in putting your head in the sand. You know, I think you have to pay attention. You know, I'm not saying uh, you have to, uh, I'm, not, I'm saying you have to reject, other, you can't just like, oh, I'm going to follow Rand Paul now. I'm going to follow Marco Rubio. No, for, you know, Believe in your own ideas, okay? You can listen to these people, but you know you don't follow Marco Rubio, follow Ted Cruz. You you you'd be uh, dead if you follow those guys. You know, I mean, the point is, you got to listen. You got to look at these people, and you got to understand who they are. They're people, right? They're only people, and people aren't doing. People are not. People, we're not doing well right now. People, <laughs> you know, we're heading in the wrong direction. You know, as a society, and uh, you know. It's, it's really, you know, it's, it's all over the place. You got the, you know, you even get the rat, you got some rat, I mean, I don't want, I'm not, there's some people on the left side that don't even understand the word compromise, you know? It's like their way of the highway, you know? Uh, that's not how life works, you know? That, you can't have everything you want, you know? Life is about compromise. Life is about understanding everyone's perspective, you know? There's people on the left that wanna just like, fuck it, we've, we've been waiting too long. It's time to take it, you know? So like, you know, I'm off a change, but let's do it, let's evolve, you know? Let's evolve to a better society, a better, you know, I believe the constitution is a great framework, but let's, let's let that, that document should evolve a little bit, you know? Uh, no one, and I don't think the framers thought that they were gonna accurately predict what the future held, okay? They, they did a hell of a job um, laying out, laying this out for us, okay? But, it, you know, to hear these constitutionalists say, oh, you can't touch this, you know, it's like, it doesn't make any sense. 
why, why would you say a document that old is perfect? You know, you can't touch it, you know, it just doesn't make any sense, you know? So we need people, logical people to start speaking up and, and thinking logically, you know? We can't be guided all by religion and, uh, you know, these fundamental religion, religious ideas or fundamental uh, nationalist ideas or, you know, the constitution can't be touched, you know, it just doesn't make any sense, you know, so. I, I do something called a lightning round. I'll ask you okay. about a band or a person and just say the first thing oh. that comes up. <laughs> um, so Black Flag. Blunt force in your face. That's what I think of Black Flag, you know. Bad Brains. Greatest band of all time, but uh, biggest uh, disappointment of all time. The greatest yep. band of all time. But, you know, I got to make that clear. The greatest band, not hardcore band, the greatest band of all time, but also the biggest disappointment of all time. Well put, well put. Uh, DOA. Again? DOA. DOA? DOA, like uh, chaos, I guess. I just thought of DOA being like the uh, soundtrack of chaos for me. You know, like I just think of uh, <laughs> this full on chaos, you know? Like, no, you know, just like full on chaos. Because uh, I don't know, the, the DOA shows in Boston were somewhat of the more chaotic ones. I'm not sure. I, I got to hope that it was the music that made it that. I believe that. Um, I can't, you know, I can't go back in time, uh, but that's what they struck me. I'm mean, very important band, you know, and those, I was friends with those guys. They stayed at a house a few times or something like that, but, uh, you know, definitely, uh, you know, foundation band. Well, they, they hardcore 81, that album yeah. <laughs> is like the, you know, kind of like Blueprint, right? the concept, um, minor threat. Minor threat. I'd, I'd put them in, uh top five hardcore bands of all time. Uh, greatest band to play on a bill with, you know, like to be part of a bill with was them. Uh, like, I, I don't know like how I'd call it, but uh, I'd say the, like maybe like uh, the most important band in the world. I wouldn't say the greatest, but I'd say the most important band in the world. Circle Jerks. Circle Jerks were like... I put them like close to DOA in a way. Like as far as like uh, chaos, the kind of feeling of just pure, utter chaos. Uh, and those are the only two bands I might think of in that line. Uh, but I think uh, they were like, I thought they were like, professional like really professionally uh for the amount of chaos i thought they were real pros at it <laughs> that means anything you know yeah that was an incre incredible live band right incredible live band like yeah. you know like yeah top five definitely you know yeah. um tsol tsol like i wrote about tsol uh, in that choice in that in my the thing i wrote in my rules i thought tsol was an very great band very interesting man because they were different you know they weren't like everyone they had their own unique flavor to the mix you know and and you know i think that by itself brought some controversy with them you know i remember there was like you know a lot of anti-tsol talk you know somewhere in the 80s or something you know and i i wrote like 
you know, yeah, if you don't like them, but I mean, just don't like join the crowd and, jo- you know, ganging up on them. That's what I felt was going on. I felt like there was like, you know, those groups that were just ganging up on TSOL. I didn't think they deserved that. So you know, I just, that's what I meant by it. Like, like, yeah. Are you just like hated on TSOL because everyone else is, or do you really hate TSOL, you know? And I felt it was a bunch of that, you know? So anyway. I remember when they came to Washington, D.C., everybody was like, fuck TSOL. Because you know, Rollins <laughs> thing. And TSOL showed up with these six, three surfers. Like what? Yeah. What? To bring it, you know? And what, that what, was the end of the conflict. <laughs> I tell you, it's funny. So they, when they, they played in Boston, it's streets, okay? Uh, this, we played with them the show. So I remember going downstage. I think we, I think we were on the bill. If we were on the bill, we were backstage with them. And I remember downstairs, you know, I heard about TSOL, you know, at the time I'm like, okay, we'll get sick. Like, are these guys going to fucking, you know, when I go downstairs, they're going to fuck around with me. We're going to have a, you know, I don't know what's going to happen. No, but I, I remember saying that these are got big guys, you know, but they didn't, they didn't like, they, they were nice to me, you know, I just, I didn't know the reputation uh, was what it was, you know, like put this way, if I came downstairs, they immediately started fucking, like fighting with me or something, I was like, then that would have been a different TSOL. I didn't think that's who they were, you know? And they weren't that. What an incredibly intense band. I actually had the pleasure of seeing them in the West Coast. And they were oh, yeah? a totally different sensation on the West Coast than the East Coast. And it was, it was a I big bet. deal. It was a big deal. And it was really scary and violent. And Yeah, they had a, they had a scary crowd, right, back then, in the sure. West Coast. Oh, my yeah. God. The uh, uh, HB or whatever. Yep, yep. <laughs> Another name on this list was John Joseph. John Joseph. Oh, interesting you brought him up. Uh, I first met John Joseph when I saw the Bad Brains at that 171 show. You know, he told me about he's part of the DC crew. And then I think I met him again a month later at Black Flag Played Irving Plaza. Henry came down. This is the show that really left that impression. I had not met Ian at the time. I think we've talked on the phone bunch of times but Henry I met Henry and the impression the impression they gave me there was 10 or 20 guys there okay I thought they were all from DC and the impression I got where they were all this you know X's on the hand straight edge guys okay that really you know lasting impact lasting image to me image of strength and you know unity and you know the guys sticking together fuck you know not drinking and I said you know it, I could relate to it because, like I said, I was already kind of progressing away from drinking. When I already, when we went to New York, I remember, you know, I think, you know, we enjoyed that uh, freedom of New York where you could put beer in a, a brown bag or something and walk around the streets. But I was going through the motions, you know, I really, because believe me, if I was into it, there would have been more wildness going on, you know. I was kind of like just kind of going through the motions, like, you know, because I was with this new set of guys. I mean, this is all the SSD guys and the Boston crew guys. And I didn't feel the same energy that I, I had a drink with them guys and stuff, you know. So, but anyways, that impression of me and Henry left a strong impression with me. And I said, you know, I'm just going to live my life a different way. You know, I'm not going to, I'm not, I'm just going to like not even go there. You know, like rather than go through the motions, I'm just going to not go there. So those were important times. But John, I think, misrepresented himself to me. Okay. I thought he was pot part of that whole thing you know and he wasn't you know because then later on i i find out years later you know he had a lot of issues with uh, drugs and stuff and you know i think it's a great story the fact that he you know overcame all those uh those struggles that he had and things like that and then you know goes on 
to do his Iron Man, all those things. I mean, all those things, I admire those things in him, you know. Uh, even the fact that, you know, he eats, he eats a, a very clean diet, you know. But I don't, what I don't like is when he goes off and stating these facts about things he thinks he knows and he doesn't really know. And, you know, I, I don't want to go back and forth and debating these facts, but, you know, it doesn't, just doesn't make sense by, if you logically went through what I went through that exercise of just logically thinking about some of the things that he's saying, it's just not him too. There's many other people in the scene that don't believe, that believe Bill Gates is like, uh, wakes up to screw the whole world, you know? Uh, I don't think that way. I gotta, I believe, I, I think for us to go forward, we need to believe in someone, okay? We can't just not believe in anyone, or we can't just say, don't believe in them, but I'm going to believe in John Joseph, you know, we can't make those choices. We have to believe in people who we see are trying to make the world better. How about Harley Flanagan? Whoa. Like I said, Harley was a you know little kid when I first met him. He went on to form Chromags, I guess, with John. I don't know enough about all the real intricacies. It sounds like there was many different lineups and more drama than I, I don't even know, you know, uh, but it's interesting. I, 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 I gotta admit, I'm more interested about the story because, uh, I just, you know, it's an interesting story, I guess, now when you think about it, um, I don't know, you know, the personal drama between the two of them, but I don't, I know they see the world differently. I know Holly's a talented musician, you know, very, very talented music. I don't know if he's a singer, you know, but I know he's a talented bass player. Maybe, a, you know, he's a drummer when I knew him. I didn't even know he was a bass player. I didn't even know he played bass, you know, until uh, later, you know. Uh, but, uh, you know, I think he said something about Boston people somewhere on some video once. I took exception to that. So that's my only comment. I don't think he quite uh, he quite sees things as from our perspective. He might see it from his perspective. In his perspective, it was, you know, there wasn't much of a scene early on in the days. I agree. After that Gildersleeve show, there was a much different, you know, it was a later maturing uh, New York hardcore scene. And, you know, uh, certainly they've left their mark. Uh, I mean, I, it's undeniable, right? I mean, if you, all these bands that have kind of, uh, you know, the different uh, evolutions of bands and stuff, I mean, it's undeniable. New York hardcore has left a huge mark, right? Maybe, maybe bigger than Boston. I don't know. Um. How about Springer? Springer. You know, so Springer, put, you know, I'm not going to put Springer in the same category as Gigi Allen, but let's say there's some commonality there. But, um, you know, it's just not the guy. Like, I mean, uh, he's a great front man, you know, but, you know, we just, you know, we're different kind of guys, you know, like, uh, I don't want to get into it, but like he, he, he would be the guy that goes into a store He's a taker, not a giver, you know, let's put it that way. I'm a giver, okay? I'm not a taker. And, uh, you know, that's the way I look at things, you know. Uh, Isn't I, there a story, like, was it in American Hardcore, maybe? Or the I'm trying to remember the source, maybe the American Hardcore book where he stole something from a store on tour and you drew, made him go back and return it or something like that? Well, he stole some from the store and, you know, he, he just, uh, I, I'm not sure... I, I don't I don't even know if he's I think he's still the same guy actually and I'm still the same guy so that's pathetic actually but <laughs> but but uh he might be worse um but uh I, you know we just look at the world differently I think he looks at the world as uh something to take you know I look at the world as something to give you know like uh, what can I give back you know it's just a different way of looking at things you know 
is a place in my world for Springer, you know, uh, you know, can, can we coexist in a band together? That was the struggle, you know? Yeah, I got, yeah. Uh, so, you know, can we coexist together? Um, you know, we did pretty good, I think, to make it as long as we did. And, and I think the 2024 thing is, isn't about me wanting to go back on stage. 2024 is about me trying to save my life to find, you know, to, to find uh, a way to get up off the floor and, you know, regain some type of uh, functionality in my life. And that, it's really a challenge, 2024. But certainly at the same time, 2024 would be a celebration of the band and a way to uh, mend those fences with Springer in a way. Like maybe, you know, I'm not going to say they're going to be uh, all, uh, all love here. You know, there's probably going to be a lot of heat at the beginning and we might have to get through some tough love, you know. Uh, hopefully we can get past some of the initial reintroductions of ourselves and some to get, well, you know, to get to some common. You must have issues still about the fact that I mean, you basically had this guy taking drugs and singing straight edge lyrics, right? I mean, he's singing your your heartfelt lyrics about a certain state of mind and he's of a different state of mind. I give him credit for it though. I mean, who can do that, you know? <laughs> I couldn't do that, <laughs> you know? I mean, you know what I'm saying, but I mean, some people can do it. I don't know, like, I really do give him credit for that, you know, that he could actually do that. And he never said, I won't, I can't, anywhere in the process, did he ever say, I can no longer do this, <laughs> you know, which is even wilder, right? And, and, and you know, in the break it up, he started, I, I, uh, the, the reins were removed. He, he did write some of his own lyrics on that. Not many, but he did write a little bit more on break it up. Uh, you know, it's just, I don't know. I, I feel, I, like I said, I feel, uh, feel weird about it. Like, you know, I, you know, I'm not the singer. I shouldn't be writing the lyrics maybe, but I did. <laughs> I do, do I regret it? I don't regret it, but uh, you know, I, I give him credit for working with me. <laughs> this has been such an amazing interview. I, I just want to close with one last one. Is yeah. um, uh, what would you say about your legacy, the legacy of Al Burrell? What's my legacy? Uh, yeah. My legacy is that I tried to be a good leader and 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 you know, help, help to empower other people through my empowerment, you know, my self-empowerment, my growth to make other people, you know, just use their brain, you know, think a little bit, think things, think, think use their head and think things through and, uh, you know, see the world a little bit differently and uh, uh, open your mind to, to uh, just, you know, what the choices you make, make them because you believe in them, not to like just take other people's choices and go along with the crowd. I mean, if that, if that isn't one thing that I could say is to just not go along with the crowd, you know? Uh, you know, have the, have the confidence, have the power, have the self-belief to stand up to the crowd, really, you know? So I think, I think if you look through all the commonality, common, all the, everything in my life, you know, my, my career, my music, you know, the gauge thing, was to try, you know, keep keep trying to get better, right? Wake up every day uh, with a plan to be better than the last day. I think this, me and John Joseph might agree in that. I've always believed in that. Um, I think it's more than maybe discipline or whatever like that and coaching. I think uh, there's other other things that add in, but I believe in teams. I believe that you know we we grow strength from each other. You know, I completely believe in teams. You know, uh, and hopefully teams will get us out of this situation right here. You know that people. Instead of splitting apart, we'll grow together, 
you know, hopefully this unites us instead of divides us. It's not looking back. We're just looking forwards too. like, how do we get out of this right now? You know, I mean, I, I don't know if you follow on, on Twitter and stuff, just, you know, certain, certain Republicans have been outspoken during this whole time. And those are the ones that I look, I look up to right now, you know, because they're the bravest ones, you know, uh, they, they basically gave up their whole life, their whole career, their whole ideology, everything they believed in for like 30 or 40 years, they just basically had to give it away, you know? So those are the people, those are the courageous people that I look up to. Awesome, awesome. So thank you, Al, for all your amazing yeah. input. Uh, I hope you put it together, to man, I don't listening. know. <laughs> yeah, thank you to everyone for listening. Please follow us. Please check out the next thought-provoking American Hardcore podcast. I'm Stephen Blush, see you next time. The American Hardcore Podcast is a production of the Blush Media Network. For further information, blushmedianetwork at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.